Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, episode 115 with Dean Carnazes. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me. This is my podcast. My name is Rich Roll, and I'm the guy behind the mic trying to get the best out of my guests to help you guys take your life experience next level. Thanks for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for sharing the show on all your social networks, especially Instagram, my favorite. Thank you for subscribing to my newsletter at richroll.com. And thank you for supporting the show by clicking through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. It's so easy. It's free. It doesn't take any time. Come on, you guys. If you're not doing it, get on it, please. If you're not already, just do me that one favor. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, Here's what's what. Each week, I sit down with the best and the brightest people I can find, forward-thinking, paradigm-busting minds, I convince to sit down with me to share their experience, their knowledge, their insights, all so I can do what I can to help all of you guys discover, uncover, unlock, and unleash your best, most authentic self. It's a special week. We just celebrated the show's two-year anniversary, and we just surpassed the 4 million download milestone. 4 million downloads. You know what? I don't even know what to say. I'm elated. I'm happy. I'm grateful. And I'm so humbled. I'm humbled more than you know. If you've been with me since the beginning, you know the the very crude uh, start that this show had. I mean, I, I began this thing out in a yurt on the North Shore of Kauai when my family was living there on an organic farm. It was just a creative experiment, a creative exercise. I had no attachment to the result. My expectations for all of this were zero. And I just felt this urge to continue the conversation that, that my book, Finding Ultra, had started by sharing some of the people, some of the information, some of the inspiration and tools that have been so helpful to me along this path. And I got to say, I'm just I'm blown away by what the show has become. And I can't thank all of you enough for all the passion, the support, and for just, you know, well, just being an incredible audience. And all I can say is that I promise to keep getting, get, keep getting better at this, like my diction. <laughs> I promise to keep upping my game, and I will do my best to keep bringing you the best people and the best information that I can find. Anyway, just a very long-winded way of saying thank you guys for being awesome. Before we get into today's guest, an exciting guest at that, I wanted to briefly mention that we're running a big sale on all our products at richroll.com, $10 off my repair recovery formula, $10 off all our t-shirts, and we have an awesome new design. It's the Peace and Plants theme, if you saw my Instagram picture. Um, Pretty cool t-shirt to rock your affiliation with the show. We got it in white, we got it in blue, we got it in women's, we got it in men's, so check all that stuff out. We also are running a two-for-one sale on on the B12 product. I know there's a lot of Black Friday craziness out there. Uh, my buddies at No Meat Athlete are running a campaign on a big bundle of products of which I contributed to. I can give you a link for that in the show notes to this show. It's marked down from like 500 bucks to 97 or something like that. Anyway, check the show notes for links. Uh, and if you want to be in the know on all this kind of sales stuff, uh, just make sure you subscribe to my newsletter. That's the easiest way to find out. 
Uh, and this sale that we're running is running for a full three weeks. It's going through December 20th. So it's a great way to pick up some cheap, cool gifts for the holidays. Boom, we're done. We're out of here. Okay. Lots of excitement and anticipation about today's guest. And this interview has been a long time in the making, but uh, it's finally here. Dean Carnazes. Dean Carnazes. That's right, people. One of the most lauded and celebrated and accomplished ultra runners, or just make that athlete in any discipline to ever walk the planet. That guy. The guy who can seemingly run forever. He's today's guest. If you've never heard of Dean, well, he's a public speaker. He's a best-selling author. He's a world-renowned athlete. He's an entrepreneur. He's a guy that Time Magazine named as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. Men's Fitness has hailed him as one of the fittest men on the planet. He's an internationally recognized endurance athlete and a New York Times bestselling author. This is a guy who has pushed his body and his mind to limits uh, that most people out there, the average human being, can uh, barely conceptualize, let alone uh, achieve on their own. So just to give you a, a better grip on what he's all about, what he's done, let's run through a quick look at some of his ridiculous mind-bending running accomplishments. Uh, in 2005, he ran 350 miles in under 81 hours foregoing sleep for three days. What? In 2006, he ran a marathon in each of the 50 states in 50 consecutive days. Whoa. On 11 occasions, he has run a 200-mile relay race solo, racing alongside teams of 12. He's won the Ford Desert Race Series in 2008, victoriously running across the Gobi, the Antikara, the Sahara, and the Antarctica deserts. Yes, uh, Antarctica, the portion that they run, is indeed a desert. He did that all in the 2008 calendar year. In 2004, he won the Badwater 135. You've heard me talk about this, this race quite a bit on the podcast most recently with David Clark and, and also with Josh Spector. Uh, Dean's a guy who's run the Badwater 135 race 10 times, and I had the honor of crewing for him uh, on his 10th attempt, and we talk a lot about that today in the podcast. Dean has also run 148 miles on a treadmill in 24 hours, and he ran 3,000 miles across the U.S. from Disneyland to New York City in 75 days. How do you do it in 75 days? Well, you have to run 40 to 50 miles a day. And Dean did that back in 2011. So now you get the idea. Uh, you know, given all of these feats of astounding endurance and more, I mean, Dean is widely lauded and rightfully so, in my opinion, as one of the greatest athletes of our time. But it wasn't always this way for Dean. After success on the track in high school, Dean hung up the shoes. He put running in his rear view in favor of school and business and other pursuits in his life. But by age 30, he found himself at a spiritual crossroads, which is something that <laughs> I identify with. Uh, dissatisfied with the successful, comfortable life that he'd built for himself, he just yearned for something more. He yearned for a challenge. He yearned for discomfort. He yearned for struggle. Because to struggle is to be alive. After a now famous drunken all night run following his 30th birthday party at a bar in San Francisco called Paragon, which just so happened to be my favorite bar when I lived in San Francisco. Long story. We talk about this a little bit too during our conversation. 
anyway, the rest is well-documented running history. Dean chronicles his discovery and his love of running in his best-selling memoir, Ultra Marathon Man, which is, you know, that's a must-read for anyone who loves an inspirational story of adversity and personal triumph. Uh, and Dean's journey, he, he continues to chronicle his journey in his follow-up books, 50-50 and Run. And he's currently hard at work on a new book, something a little bit different. Uh, it's a novelized look at the amazing life of Pheidippides, the legendary Greek who ran from Marathon to Athens to deliver news of a military victory against the Persians. And it's a guy and a subject uh, close to Dean's heart, given his Greek heritage. So how does he do it? Some talk, some, you know, some chalk it up to genetics. Well, he's just a guy with a freakishly high lactate threshold. He's got an unnaturally high tolerance for pain or an unusual ability to tolerate sleep deprivation. And look, I mean, setting aside debate on whether these mental and physiological data points are earned or inherited, I feel compelled to say that the answer to this question is far more complex and far more interesting. I first met Dean very briefly back at a trade show, uh, 2011, I believe. And in 2012, he was gracious enough to give me a very kind blurb endorsement for my book, Finding Ultra. But I can't honestly say that I really knew the guy. And then out of the blue, he sent me a short cryptic email in early 2013. (laughs) And all it said was, quote, any desire to spend a few relaxing days out in Death Valley this summer? My response was something like, are you asking me what I think you're asking me? And indeed it was. It was a formal invitation from Dean to support his 10th attempt at Badwater to join his crew. And that was simply an offer I, I could not refuse. Beyond the honor, it was just an extraordinary experience. And I recount much of it in my podcast chat with Josh Spector last year. That was episode 40, if you want to go back and listen to that. And I have to say, I was in over my head on that one. I, I hadn't been training enough at the time, and I was very intimidated. But I'm so grateful to have had that experience. And myself, along with Jason Coop and Brandon Fries and Nathan Pierbold, who rounded out Dean's crew, we collectively spent 24 hours pacing him across Death Valley, the hottest place on earth, and over these mountain passes and up the Whitney portals to 8,000 feet. And for me, the highlight was running alongside Dean through a huge portion of the night for many, many hours uh, until daybreak. And that was a period of time in which I had the opportunity to really connect with Dean, to talk to him at length about running, about writing, and just about life. And that's when I felt I really got to know the guy for the first time. And I saw Dean sail. I saw him struggle. I saw how he handled incredible duress and extraordinary suffering and temperatures upwards of 130 degrees. I saw how patience and experience and sheer determination got him through tough spots and ultimately across the Badwater finish line for the 10th time. I experienced also how he welcomes and navigates his fame and popularity with gentlemanly presence, with grace, and with gratitude. And then the day after the race, I got to spend another two hours alone with him in the car, uh, a long drive with him. And that was another time in which I felt I really got to know him and know him well. And I consider this man to be one of the great champions of our time. He's a true role model. He's an inspiration to me personally, as well as to millions worldwide. And he's someone I'm lucky to call a mentor and a friend. So what makes Dean Karnazes the most successful runner on earth? 
now in his 50s, how has his perspective on nutrition changed? How has his perspective on training changed? After accomplishing so much, what continues to drive him? What gets him out of bed in the morning after he's done so much? How is he able to run such great distances seemingly without fatigue? And how does he balance his running with his philanthropy, with raising kids, with maintaining a healthy marriage, with running a successful business, his countless speaking engagements, his appearances, and his travel commitments? And how does he feel about failure versus success? Well, let's find out. A quick note before getting into it. We recorded this interview in his house in Marin. He was kind enough to to host me (laughs) for the interview. And it just so happened to be on the same day that he had all kinds of construction going on. So if you hear the occasional saw drill, you know, power drill or hammer in the background, well, we're just going to have to live with it. It's just part of the ambiance. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties. And 
deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. So you've been traveling a lot. What's going on? Just a lot of global travel, and mm-hmm. it's all good. I mean, uh, just sponsorship obligations, you know, speaking obligations. Um, you know, all, it's all work based, but there's a lot of running involved. <laughs> uh huh. And you're getting ready to go to the New York Marathon, right? Going back to New York City, yeah. And I just did this race called the uh, Spartathlon, mm-hmm. which is a 153 mile race from uh, Athens to Sparta. So I, um, I'm writing a book about Vidipides in the mm-hmm. original marathon, and um, I tried to eat only the foods that he ate mm-hmm. during this race. So it's this stuff called pastelli. It's kind of a, it's mashed sesame seed and honey, um, figs, um, olives, cured meat, and nuts. Yeah, how did that go? It's all and water. No, no electrolyte replenishment. <laughs> it was good for about the first 80 miles, and uh-huh. then I couldn't. Literally for the last 70 miles, all I had was water wow. for 70 miles. Yeah. You couldn't hold it down anymore? I just, I was so over the, <laughs> the Greek diet. Yeah, it was, even though I trained with this stuff, I'd never trained, you know, going beyond 50 miles with it. Mm-hmm. And it was just, yeah, just a little too much for my, you know, my stomach. Right, right, right. So when, uh, when I was crewing you at Badwater, I had the, the good fortune of, of basically being by your side throughout most of the night, you know, the night running. And we had, I don't know if you remember, but we had a really long talk about uh, your interest in Greece and Pheidippides and this book that you're working on, which is fascinating because I, I didn't know, you know, much about the history of Pheidippides and, and how that kind of dovetails into your Greek ancestry. I mean, your name is Constantine, right? That's your birth name, right? So this is a going home for you. 
Yeah, Constantine Nicholas Carnassus, and the uh, the route of the Spartathlon um, is goes right through a, a village. My family's from, my father's family's from. Mm-hmm. So it's you know right where my heritage, my roots are, and you know the the the. The Marathon legend is that this guy ran from the battlefield of Marathon to the Acropolis, and you know, which is you know, 26 miles, 26.2, and then you know, proclaimed uh, Greek victory over the Persians, and then he died. But the, the real story is that they dispatched this runner uh, from Athens to Sparta to recruit the Spartans. You know, the Spartans were known as um, you know, fierce warriors. If you've seen the movie 300, yeah. you, know, you know, we are Sparta. So uh, this, you know, Pheidippides ran an ultra marathon, 153 miles, and this mm. uh, this Spartathlon uh, follows the footsteps that he, uh, you know, of his path. And what's really interesting is that these ultra marathoners. I mean, he was he was one of many, right? They were like sort of the heroes because that was how they relied on communicating with each other over great distances. That was the Greek kind of their, you know, that was the internet back then, the uh-huh. footed version. I mean, that was how they, uh, they gathered intelligence and communicated with um, outlying city-states is they, uh, they sent these foot warriors, these messengers, and they're called all-day runners. They're professional runners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, legend has it they could outrun a horse because of the terrain. I mean, I saw some of the mm-hmm. terrain in Greece. It's very mountainous, very hilly, uh, very technical. And these guys could just, you know, outrun a horse. And that gives them a strategic advantage militarily. Yep, that's exactly what it was. And, you know, their endurance was quite remarkable. I mean, you know, the, in, in the ancient writing, uh, Pheidippides uh, was able to leave in the morning and arrive in Sparta um, before sunset the next day. So mm-hmm. sub 36 hours. Wow. Yeah, and um, the Spartathlon has a very rigid cutoff of 36 hours. I mean, that, that's it. For that it. reason. Yep, and very, uh, very tight... Um, uh, you know, cutoffs for each of the exchanges. So you've got to be at uh, mile 51 within nine and a half hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, only about a third of the people that uh, attempted actually finished the race. Mm-hmm. Interesting. How many people are in that field? Uh, this year, I think they let in 500 people. And this year, I think 475 showed up at the starting line. Uh-huh. Yeah. And is that a, a qualifying process, kind of like Badwater, where you, you have to fill out like a college application to get in? I mean, what are the requirements? It's same sort of rigmarole. Yep, mm-hmm. very elite field, um, kind of the most elite field um, of ultra marathoners, and same sort of thing. You know, you need a qualifying race. You need to submit your resume, and they kind of evaluate and kind of pick the top five hundred. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, as as far as this book is concerned, I mean, I think when we were talking, you were saying it's sort of a, a novelized version of this historical account. Is that still what the book is? You know, they call it faction, the Mm -hmm. genre, which is, you know, historical fiction. So it's going to be based on as much history, um, you know, that I can gather. I'm working with a guy named uh, Paul Cartledge, who's the uh, foremost authority on ancient Greek culture. He's a professor at uh, Cambridge University. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the record is is fuzzy. (laughs) I mean, it was 490 BCE. So it was, you know, it was 500 years before Christ. And we know even the story around Christ is kind of fuzzy, and uh, this is even a little more diluted. So, I mean, how do they find out anything? Like, what what is he relying on to piece this together about what was actually going on? There, there are ancient Greek records, mm-hmm. and you know, some of the writing about Pheidippides. The most clearest writing was fifty years after after the battle. 
So, you know, some time had elapsed. And then it wasn't for 500 years after <laughs> the invasion of, of Marathon by the Persians that someone wrote of this guy running the 26.2 miles. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even refer to him as Pheidippides. So, um, you know, the, the legend and the reality are two different things. I mean, the guy who ran from Marathon to the Acropolis probably wasn't Pheidippides. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone attributes it to him, but uh, it was probably someone else. Right. And are, were they running barefoot? Like what kind of footwear... Do they, do, do they know? Yeah, they were most likely running barefoot. I mean, they had some primitive sandals they found, but they said most of these guys probably ran barefoot. And the other thing with Pheidippides is he ran in full battle armament. So he had a mm-hmm. you know, metal breastplate and he had greaves on his legs. And you know, the heat in Greece uh, at that time of year is intense. What about like, <laughs> I can't even I, imagine I, like, like the rashes he must have had. I mean, it's not like he had Vaseline or anything like that or crazy glue for his, you know, blisters. No. And, you know, even like I said, water, getting water along the way. I mean, he had a mm-hmm. goat skin bladder most likely for water. And there's, you know, rivers and streams he'd have to gather water out of. And, you know, how much food could a guy like that carry? I mean, he didn't have a hydration pack. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't have all the sophisticated stuff we have these days. To cover that distance in that terrain, you know, in that time, is phenomenal, <laughs> but you weren't. You didn't run the Spartathlon in the in the garb of Pheidippides, <laughs> no. Because <laughs> I saw that picture on Facebook of you running in traditional Greek garb, like a Halloween costume or something. Well, you know, there was a marathon, the San Jose Marathon, on Halloween Day, and so I ran in that costume and I ran barefoot. Oh, you ran barefoot! Wow, and last year, it was a few years ago. I, I couldn't walk <laughs> for a few weeks afterward. It wasn't. It wasn't even the muscles. The feet were just destroyed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that was one and done. <laughs> right, cool. And how far along are you in the book? Like, what's the you know when do you expect it to come out? Do you have a title for it? It's hopefully it'll release. It's by Rodeo, so mm-hmm. um, the same publishers run a world. Hopefully, it'll release um, summer of next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's you know I I just I keep working with my editor who's been very very liberal. Um, and very gracious with the the time, <laughs> uh-huh. and you know, I just said I can't rush this book. I mean, it's it's the story's got to happen, and um, you know, the worst thing we can do is try to rush it. You right. know, he said well, we're going to be patient. We'll wait for it, and let's make it the best book it can be. Mm-hmm. And it's a departure from your other books. I mean, all your other books are are essentially personal accounts of your adventures, and so this is a new. This is stepping you know stepping it up into a new world of writing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's. Um, it, you know, never stop exploring, right? It's, right. it's a new challenge. And, and that's why I said, I just, I can't, uh, it's, it's so much different than anything I've done before. I, I can't timestamp this thing or it's going to turn out that no one's going to like it, mm-hmm. including me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the nutrition a little bit. Everyone wants to know, you know, we got, we got like saws going on back there. <laughs> little instruction very authentic, the yeah. Yes, adding to the, uh, the, the authenticity of this, of this uh, talk. Um, you know, the, the lore is, oh, you know, Dean orders pizzas when he's out running and they deliver, you know, deliver them to, you know, wherever he is. And, and I think for a long time, that was the truth of your circumstances. You were, you were training so much that you didn't pay much attention to what you were eating and, and just kind of, you know, Cheetos, whatever it is. And that's really evolved. I mean, when we were at Badwater, you were kind of relating how you've, uh, you know, adopted a new approach to what you eat and how that's impacted your training and your racing. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the reason my message resonates with people is the same reason yours does, is that, you know, people can change. And I think there's a message of hope in that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, I was, I used to eat so much crud. <laughs> I'll never live down the story, you know, of running this 200-mile relay and being yeah, that's stranded. Yeah, be on your gravestone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, stranded out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, no food, no crew, but I had a credit card and a cell phone, so I ordered a pizza. I mean, it seemed mm-hmm. logical to me. And, you know, it was just, it was, in my early running career, it was just, a, it, was, it was calories or calories. All calories are created equal. You know, you're burning five to 700 calories an hour. You know, you're running for 30 hours. Mm-hmm. You need 25,000 calories. Just get the calories in however you can. And I've gone full circle. I've, I found that, um, you know, getting rid of all packaged foods. I mean, you know, Jack LaLanne, who's a guy you know and a guy mm-hmm. I respect and a mentor of mine said, um, if man makes it, don't eat it. And if it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I just try to avoid any processed and refined foods these days. I mean, what was the evolution like, though? Did something happen where you said, you know, I'm going to make this switch? Or is it just a gradual process of trying to improve, it, you know, as you age? You know, it was a, it was a process more than just um, during athletic performances. It was during uh, just everyday life, you know, trying to be my best uh, father, you know, have my highest energy levels, um, you know, reduce the amount of sleep, you know, improve the quality of life. And I just, um, through a process of elimination, experimentation, I just started eliminating foods that kind of brought me down mm-hmm. and adding more of the foods that kind of, you know, stabilized my energy or left me feeling really, really good and healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of through that weeding out process, uh, I got to the diet I'm at right now. Right. And I like how you're not you're not really dogmatic about it. There's no label to it. I mean, essentially, you know, you eat nutrient-dense foods and you avoid processed foods. I mean, that, those are seem to me to be the general thumbnails there. It's not uh, ascribing to any particular, you know, specific, like, this is my diet. Well, you know, I'm like you. I, I read a whole lot and I try and a lot of new things. I'm always receptive to trying new things. So, you know, if you had to characterize my diet, you would say it's a, um, a hybrid between, you know, paleo, um, the, the, you know, the Mediterranean diet, mm-hmm. the zone diet, kind of that 40, 30, 30 um, balance of uh, carbs to protein to fat, um, you know, the pescadarian, as people mm-hmm. call it. So, you know, I, eat, I do eat fish. I mm-hmm. love, um, you know, sustainably caught uh, wild Pacific uh, salmon. So I eat a lot of salmon, um, also primarily raw. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't cook any of my vegetables. I really don't cook a lot of my food. Right, and a lot of bananas, not so many gels. A lot of bananas. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, and nut butters. I've really, I've turned yeah. to nut butters uh, for, instead of, you know, gel packs, as far as energy, sustained energy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah healthy fats and very calorie dense when you're out on the road or the trail. Yep. So when you go out for a run, like, what do you, you, what do you pack with you? Like, what do you generally bring? You know, I'm kind of a minimalist. It's funny. When I run, I don't take in a lot of liquid. I don't sweat a lot, and I don't take in a lot of calories. So I'll typically throw in uh, a couple nut butters. I've been eating these pastelli bars, which are from mm-hmm. Greece. So they're, um, it's basically a sesame seed and honey. It's really pure, very simple, and a great source of energy. It's got the sesame seed, which has got some fat. And so it ties you for a long time. And mm-hmm. I found it really carries me. It doesn't impact my blood sugar at all. So mm-hmm. very uh, consistent. Low glycemic. Low glycemic, yeah. 
And what's a, you know, what does a typical sort of training day or, or week look like, you know, for you? Like walk me through, you know, what your general routine is. <laughs> I mean, I know it's I'm like, I'm like yeah, a lot because you're traveling all the time. Yeah, I wish it wasn't that. typical. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah you know, that's, a tip, that's the toughest thing with all the travel. It's hard to get in these consistent training blocks. But, you know, if I do have a, um, a week where I'm home training, I like to get up early. I like to get up, you know, 3.30, 4 in the morning sometimes and... You know, I like to run a marathon before mm-hmm. breakfast if I can. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds funny, but, um, I, you know, I like to log 20 to 25 miles in the morning. Mm-hmm. And um, this might be at my own pace. So, you know, just running as hard as I can when I feel like running hard and backing off when I don't have the energy. And then um, I've got my home office set up at, at um, standing level. So I never sit throughout the day. I'm always on my feet. I've got a um, pull-up bar in my office. Mm-hmm. And um, a sit-up mat, and I consistently cycle through this um, series of sit-ups, push-ups, dips. I have TRX, so I do some um, band right. training as well. Um, but I do like five or six of these reps throughout the day. And then in the afternoon, um, I'll go for a shorter and a, f- a faster run, maybe a, an 8 to 12-mile run, like mm-hmm. a tempo. Do a lot of hill repeats as well. So, do, so two a days, two runs a day is a typical thing for you? I like to double up when I can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, yeah, I find a lot of benefits in doubling up. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson. 
where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So a couple observations. First of all, I feel like we should be standing up. <laughs> I know. We are sitting down right I know. now. I'm, already get, I'm getting <laughs> tired just sitting, yeah. Uh, the second observation is that I'm, I'm looking for the listener out there. I'm staring at this incredible view of Mount Tamalpais right in front of me right here. And uh, we're at the top of a, a hill kind of overlooking a valley and right at the mountain. And, and I know you can run right outside your door here, right, and access all these trails. I mean, this is just, this is trail running paradise. Uh, this is, you know, ground zero for trail running, mm-hmm. I think, in, in the entire world. I mean, I've traveled the entire world, and I've been to a lot of great places, and I still think that here in Marin is, is the best place to run in the world, and for a number of reasons. One, you know, you've got San Francisco, so if you want to go into a city, you've got a great outlet. I mm-hmm. love the energy of the city. Um, you know, I love the, the intellectual growth of the city and just the dyna- dynamicism. Um, but also you can run, you know, I can run from here to uh, Seattle, <laughs> literally. I mean, there's trails that go all the way up the coastline and it's, mm-hmm. you know, I love, you know, I, I like your area, you know, down in Malibu, Southern California, but I feel like you're, you're always kind of boxed in there. Like, I mean, if you, you know, the Malibu Hills are great and, you know, the Palisades, you run north though and you hit Ventura and then there's Santa mm-hmm. Barbara. So you kind of, you know, you're just kind of boxed in. We're here. It's just still a little, you know, wide open and wild to me. Right. All the way to Seattle. I like that. (laughs) Um, The other observations have to do with sleep and recovery. Uh, And I know, I just read something recently that you wrote about recovery, kind of taking a, a, you know, a, a contrarian approach to that. And I'm interested in your perspective. Like if you're running two a days and you're, I mean, you're literally out there, you know, training, I don't know how many miles a week you're doing right now, but you, you had times where you're, you've been running 300 miles a week and other times where you're running 65 miles a week, you seem to have avoided injury pretty much throughout your entire career. Uh, and as we age, it's all about like, you need more recovery. You have to really, you know, treat your recovery the same way you treat your training. And it was interesting to, to take your temperature on that. And this, you know what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, no, I mean, that blog that you wrote recently. Yeah, and you know, I'll preface anything I say by you know the the, the caveat. You know, listen to everyone, follow no one. So you know, I, although I prescribe some things, those are what works for me. Mm-hmm. And I always encourage people to find what works best for you, especially when it comes to training and nutrition. We're all different, um, you know, and we all um, respond differently to both diet and and training. Uh, but for me, I found. Uh, you know, recovery is overrated, especially passive recovery. I think that, 
you know, the worst thing you can do after a long run or a long race is, is just passively recover. <laughs> um, I think that, uh, what I've do you never, mean by that? Exactly. Like just doing just nothing, sitting, vegging, on, the couch, sitting right? on the couch. And I think a lot of people view recovery as just, you know, sitting around with your feet up and I think active recovery is, is much more effective. So, uh, I don't, you know, don't go hard if you can, if you can't go hard, but I definitely think movement, um, helps recovery. It doesn't hurt it. So mm-hmm. I think that it's counterintuitive to a lot of people, you know, after you run an ultra or even after you run a marathon, you know, to, to go running the next day, but I'll tell you what, just, just hobble, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, just, just, um, stumble along for two to three miles, get your heart rate up, uh, get your muscles moving and activated. And it's incredible how much quicker you recover. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there are studies out there that, that, that talk about, um, the body's need to sort of go through that process of, of being broken down as a prerequisite to, to getting stronger. And when you kind of try to shortcut that through nutrition or antioxidant supplements or, or what have you, that you're depriving your body's ability to, to create that adaptation. I, I couldn't agree more. And I've learned that lesson firsthand. I mean, you know, like when I ran 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days, um, I, I thought, you know, let you need, you know, you need your supplements, you need your, you know, your, your masseuse, you need this and that, mm-hmm. you know, you need, um, your roller, your foam rollers, you need your ice bath. Normatec boots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and at a point I said, you know what, you don't need anything but your body. <laughs> Just let your body be the best body it can be. Let it heal, mm-hmm. give it good fuel and let it, let it do its thing. Um, get out of the way of all this stuff and you know, I ran the 50th marathon in, uh, in three hours flat. So, right, that was your fastest one. Yeah, so I think it says a lot about the body's ability to recover on its own and, you know, don't put a lot in. Um, you know, obviously, if you're mega dosing with vitamins, we both know, I'm, you know, so much of it, it just gets flushed through your system. Mm-hmm. I mean, it puts an extra load on your kidneys primarily to get rid of this stuff. I say don't do it. <laughs> right, just let your body... I mean, the body is extraordinary in its ability to adapt to things you... you think it can't. You know, I know when I did the Epic Five, the, the Ironman that I felt the best in was the last one. The fourth one was horrible, but the yeah. fifth one, I couldn't believe that I was able to bounce back and feel that good. Like that was a, that was like a real epiphany for me. Like my body finally said, oh, I get it. Like I, I, now I finally understand what you're trying to do. So. I know I've, I've seen that over and over again. And I mean, when I ran across America, um, you know, I just did nothing but just ran, ate clean food, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and got up, you know, with not, without a lot of sleep and just ran the next day. And I'll never forget um, how great I felt toward the finish. I mean, running through uh, New Jersey toward, you know, New York City, because I started in L.A., ran to uh, New York City. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a kind of a cool day, a great day for running, very flat. And, you know, just got up, started running, and my crew came up to me, and they're like, my God, you just ran that marathon in like 310 mm-hmm. and you know they were monitoring my heart rate they're like your heart rate hasn't even gone up over 100 beats i mean it mm-hmm. was just you know just clicking off uh, a marathon with almost no effort at all mm-hmm. i mean that's how fine-tuned the body gets and adapted to running mm-hmm. interesting yeah and at at badwater when i was there with you 
I mean, at the end of that, you were, you know, you were not in good shape and you were like, oh man, this might've been the hardest one. Like I just you know, I didn't know if I was going to make it. I, I, I don't remember feeling this beat up from this race. And we went back to the hotel and, and you, you wouldn't eat, you wouldn't come to dinner with us. You're like, I always go to dinner, but I just, I can't move. I can't move. Like I'm so torqued. And then the next morning you look like a totally different person. You're like, <laughs> I think I'm going to go running. And I was like, oh my God, like literally one night of sleep and you had bounced back like from, you know, zero to 80. Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm very fortunate when it comes to recovery. I, I do have a, a kind of a magical gift for recovering very quickly. And, you know, bad, with, with regard to bad water, I mean, I always say it's like, that is like chasing a windmill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I cannot figure that race out because I mean, that year you, you were there with me. Um, I had trained so hard mm-hmm. and done so much preparation. I had, you know, probably the worst race I've had the entire time I've been doing it. So I just can't figure out, you know, that formula uh, for getting it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, it brings up the the subject of the importance of failures. You know, I think that there's this idea that you're just out killing it. Everything that you've ever tackled, you've succeeded at. Uh, and there's a very neatly packaged narrative around that, but that's not the reality. Like you've, you've had many times where, you know, you struggled mightily or you didn't finish a race. And I want to talk about, you know, the importance of the importance of failure in kind of the, the global, you know, sort of spectrum of personal growth. Yeah, well, I think, you know, with regard to running, especially ultra running, um, you know, taking on, you know, biting off more than you can chew is, is easy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you run a 50K, sign up for a 50 miler. You know, if you've run a 50 miler, try a 100 miler. So you can always expand the distance. And I think um, it teaches you a lot of lessons because there's going to be a point where you, you know, you go over the edge. You find the edge and you go over it and you fail. And I think personally, I've learned a lot more from my failures and my successes. I mean, you succeed mm-hmm. and, you know, what you kind of, yeah. yeah, you mm-hmm. kind of high five people like, ah, oh, that was great. You celebrate the moment. Um, you know, when you fail, you go through self-analysis. You really are critical of the situation. You really look and appraise, you know, what went wrong? What could I have done better? Um, you know, what were my shortcomings? And you learn from that. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to not just go up to the, the line of what you think your limitations are, but, but be willing to risk everything to step over that line. Yeah, and and adapt to uh, you know to to failure and and learn and move on and celebrate it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think failure is only failure if if you don't learn from it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if it's just an absolute, you fail and and you don't take anything away from that. What race do you think you've learned the most from? You know, there's a race called the uh, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc UTMB mm-hmm. in Europe, and you know, I failed twice before finishing. And I learned a lot from that race. I mean, the first year I went over there, I probably could have finished, um, but I was hobbling and I got to mile 90. You know, the other guy I was running with uh, had already DNF'd and, you know, they were over it and he was crewing for me with his wife and they just wanted to get out of there. And so I just kind of bagged it um, instead of just, you know, hobbling the last 10 miles, um, which I could have got to the finish line. So in, in hindsight, I thought, you know, I should have just finished that first year. <laughs> then we have to go back. Uh, but then I, uh, you know, I chased it a second year, tried to use poles and what a mistake, because if you start with poles, running poles, uh, you got to finish with them. You got to carry them the whole time. And oh, is I, that the rule? That's the rule. Mm. 
And, you know, all the top Europeans were using poles, so I thought I'll use poles as well. Well, unless you know how to use poles, they're really a disadvantage. So I was stumbling, I was falling, I couldn't carry these things. And finally, I went over the handlebars, planting a pole. I hit, you know, I kicked the pole and went down pretty hard and um, thought I cracked my patella, uh, DNF'd. And I went back a third time and said, no poles, just run. Mm-hmm. And was successful. Mm-hmm. And when you when you kind of you know look at the the stumblings along the way and try to extract you know what went wrong or you know how can I do better? I mean, what are the common kind of themes that that come up? I mean, is it nutrition? Is it training? Is it strategy? Is it patience? Is it you know aggressiveness? Like, can you categorize any of that? You know, for me, it's largely. It's, it's sacrifice and learning to say no, because mm-hmm. what I found is that um, unless you do the training that's necessary, which is very specific training, I mean, the, the hills over there are really steep. It's not at altitude, it doesn't go real high in the sky, but the climbs there are, are massive and they're steep. So I just had to, I had to spend some time, get over there and train on those trails. Mm-hmm. And that's what it took. And that means, you know, doing, you know, less sponsorship obligations. That means, you know, cutting back on your, your income, you know, and it, which is a, a pressure for any father because, you, you know, you got bills to pay, you got kit and mouths to feed. Mm-hmm. So it meant, uh, you know, if you want to succeed, you're going to have to sacrifice something. And is it worth the trade-off? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's different when you have kids and this is your profession, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and there's mouths to feed. So how does that impact your decision-making about travel and what you take on? And, and, you know, to go back to what you were saying, like what you say no to, because I'm finding like, you know, I'm trying to learn from your experience, you know, and, I, and I'm finding increasingly more and more that it's important to have the discernment as to what to say no to, because I'm sure people are coming to you all the time. Do this. Will you do that? You know, and, and. I would imagine that you have to say no to most of those things, those opportunities, which look good on paper, like looks yeah. like something that could be fun or something you'd be interested in doing. Well, and that, that's, you know, that is, you hit a topic that I've been trying to improve and you're absolutely right. It's, you know, learning to say no is a really important skill and um, intuitively it's not something I'm good at. My hard wiring is just to accept everything. And I've had to learn to say no, and it's still hard for me to do. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's a necessary evil, you know, how to graciously say no. And um, I'm, I still have a lot of room for improvement. You know, I, I certainly admire anyone who wants to kind of um, follow the same path that we followed because, you know, making a go of it as an endurance athlete is not easy. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's no infrastructure. I mean, you know, if you play a, a big sport like basketball or baseball or football, you know, there's a pretty clear pathway to success, right? You know, you play in high school, you play uh, good ball, you, you know, you get a scholarship to college. You play good ball in college, you get recruited to the pros. All the infrastructure is there. If you play good in the pros, you get coverage, you get media, you get contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, doing what we do, you got to create it all on your own. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not easy. And mm-hmm. you got to be scrappy. And, you know, people say, you know, who, who do you admire in sports? And, I mean, I look to people like, um, you know, Tony Hawk the skateboarder, because, mm-hmm. you know, he took skateboarding and made it into something, made it into an industry. And, you know, or Laird Hamilton, I mean, Laird Hamilton said, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like contest surfing. <laughs> I love riding big waves and damn it, I'm going to make a go of it. And, and he did. And I really admire that. 
Yeah, I mean, they have to create their own paradigm because there's, there is no paradigm. You know, there's no other... I mean, for, for Laird, there was no sport. He just likes surfing big waves, you, yeah. know, you know, and he's been able to carve out this niche and, 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 you know, be what he is today. But there was no prior example for him to look to to do that. Yeah, no, I'm, you know, he blazed his own path. And I mean, I look at races like, you know, say Western States 100 mile endurance run, which is, you know, the, the most celebrated, the most recognized, um, you know, ultra marathon in the world. And, you know, what does the guy who win get versus the guy <laughs> who right. makes it, you know, in 29, 29, 59, right before the cutoff, um, you know, a, a great gold buckle, you know, <laughs> silver buckle. buckle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people but, complain about, uh, you know, the purses at Ironman competitions because they're, they're pathetically low, you know, for, for a professional Ironman triathlete to make a living is extremely difficult. There's only, you know, a, a couple at the top of the heap that can really make a solid go of it. And, and the amount of training required to compete in that race at that level, it's all consuming. And yet there really isn't the, I mean, there's much more infrastructure in that system than there is in the ultra world. So, you know, it's a testament to, you know, what you've done that you've been able to, you know, build what you've built. It's, it's admirable and amazing. Well, and, you know, there, like you said, there's, there are sacrifices you make. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I could, be, I could be more competitive if I had a, <laughs> a mm-hmm. real job. You know, I keep thinking, geez, if you just went back to, to working in the corporate world, you'd have more, more time to train. You'd travel less. You know, right. you, could, you could do better in competition. But then I think about sitting in an office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also living a balanced life, right? You've been doing this for a really long time and, and you're, you're in a sport that could consume you completely. Like you could go live in a hut in the woods by yourself and just train all day long, every single day. There's probably no limit to the amount that you, you could train and immerse yourself in the sport, but that's not your life. You have a family, you know, you have obligations, you're writing books and, and, and this is becoming increasingly more and more important and interesting to me. Like how do I continue to you know, embrace this love that I have of, of, of sport and still be a good dad and still provide for my children and be a loving husband and, and, you know, not be cut off from my friends. You know, where, where is the demarcation line between sacrifice and, and kind of living the most productive balanced life that I can? Well, I, I, you know, I think it's a good topic. And I think if you, you know, if you look at me and you want to know the real story, I don't have a life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I have zero social life. My social life is like, you know, last weekend I was, you know, I gave a talk um, at, uh, at a running event at the um, Wine Country Half Marathon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this coming weekend I'll be at the New York City Marathon. You know, I'm doing a, like an event, uh, an appearance and a fun run at Paragon Sports on Thursday night. And, mm-hmm. you know, there'll be a couple hundred people there and that's my social event. I mean, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> that's, that's where I get my contact with people. And then I go back to my hotel room and I'm a hermit and I focus on work. I, you know, when I'm home with my family, I don't, we don't go out. I haven't seen a movie and right. I mean, I, you know, see bits and pieces of movies on airplanes, but I don't even put it on that. You know, I don't even listen to the audio. I'm always, you know, working. So constantly, um, you know, writing or, um, you know, responding to emails, um, you know, doing articles um, and so forth, no social life whatsoever. And, and I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. You know, if that was inconsistent with my hardwiring, who I was, and if I fought against that, I think uh, I'd be miserable and mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to keep it up. But I just, 
it's like not having a social life to me is is not a sacrifice because I'm a I think I'm like you. I'm a very much an introverted person, so I like my alone time. I like my quiet time. Mm-hmm. And when I'm out on the road, you know, I'm, I'm immersed in other runners and fans, and you know, I, I get a, a lot of love out yeah. there. Yeah, no, you do. And I noticed it firsthand. I mean, when we were at Badwater, it was almost like you needed people around you to make sure that you could get in and out of a room without getting too caught up talking to people because you want to engage everybody. You have all these people coming up to you. They all want a piece of Dean. You know, they want that moment and you're more than willing to give it to them. I mean, I noticed, um, I was very acutely aware of just how much you availed yourself to everybody who wanted to talk to you. And I think that's really important to be present for every interaction because that's their moment with you. They're going to remember that and it's important that you, you know, kind of are there for that. And yet at the same time, it's like, hey, I got to get registered and back to the hotel and I got to get rest and, and having, you know, somebody to kind of guide you out of that. And I was reflecting on that um, and thinking, you know, about, about uh, how that contrasts with this idea that's out there that, that uh, you know, you're this controversial figure in ultra running and, and, you know, you've ruffled feathers in the community and, you know, there's, there's some runners out there who aren't exactly thrilled that you're getting attention and they're not. Um, and all I noticed at Badwater was, you know, unanimous support and, and love for what you're doing. So I'm interested in kind of how you navigate, how you have navigated that kind of, you know, controversy or the, the kind of grumbling that's out there. Yeah, it's it. You know, it's been hard for me. I've got to be mm-hmm. honest. I've I've got a thin skin. Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that I'm I'm callous uh, or that you know, I can just deflect this stuff. I mean, I take a lot of it personally, and I'm also a very personable guy. I mean, it goes both ways. I th- I think you saw that. Um, thankfully, uh, I am what I am, and I like people, and I like hearing some of these stories. And people inspire me. I mean, they come up to me and they tell me these incredible stories. A lot of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, I have, I mean, I have probably 10,000 letters uh, down in my garage in boxes and probably twice as many emails in an Outlook folder from people mm-hmm. unsolicited. They just say, a lot of them start with the very, the very first sentence says, you know, you changed my life. So to me, that's, that's about the greatest reward um, I could ever wish for. I mean, mm-hmm. beyond any amount of money. I mean, to me, that, that means more than anything. So to... You know, to handle some of the criticism I've got, I've learned just to say, well, look, it's a very small percentage of people that are throwing jabs, and a lot of it's not credible. A lot of the people, you know, they mischaracterize me. They don't know me. And, you know, my dad always told me, he said, you know, if you've got a problem with someone, you know, don't go behind their back. Talk to them about it. I've literally never had one person come up to me and say, hey, I got a problem with you. You know, you're getting too much press, and these other guys deserve more. Uh, I've never had one person say that. It's more like, you know, in these... Anonymous um, avatars yeah, in some yeah. forum somewhere. A guy, you know, with the, the, the moniker of, um, you know, toe cheese saying, you know, I'm this and that. <laughs> I'm like, fuck toe cheese. Come on. <laughs> Who are you, buddy? Use your real name at least. Come uh-huh. on. So I've, I've learned, you know, to, to deflect some of it. But that said, you know, some, some of the criticism is, is... I don't even know if you consider it criticism. It's just observations that I agree with. Yeah, I'm not winning races. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, I'm out promoting more than, than racing a lot. And those are truths. And that's just the, the fact of the matter. So I agree with those observations. Um, you know, and regarding me getting more publicity than anyone else, I mean, 
my ultimate goal is to is to grow this pie to you know to increase the uh, amount of visibility of endurance sports so that more people can make a living doing what they love mm-hmm. and i think you know publicity is not it's not limited i mean it's it's not like a finite uh, amount of publicity that's out there we can all band together and make this a bigger and broader sport uh, that more and more people can enjoy and make a living doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are some tremendously gifted ultra runners out there that are not getting their due in the media and for a variety of reasons. But I, I think that it's changing a lot. And I think it's changing in no small part due to you know the many years of, of advocacy that, that you've done and the spotlight that you've been able to shine on this world. I mean, I think when Ultra Marathon Man came out, that was most people's first introduction to this world they had never even heard of. And ultra running, you know, it's been around for a while, but it's a very grassroots kind of thing. And you go to these races and most people are staying in tents and, you know, it's, it's super low key. And, and, uh, and now, you know, it's a lot more popular. You know, it is, it's really grown a lot. People are looking for the next thing beyond the marathon. What's the next challenge? And, and the level of awareness and respect for what people like you and the other great runners are doing out there has never been greater. And I see it continuing to expand. And I think it's interesting to kind of observe how, how the ultra running world and that community is trying to navigate the growth because there's something beautiful and pristine and pure about the roots of the sport. You know, the fact that everyone is sleeping in a tent and it's a small community and it's, it's just about the love. And now it's becoming more, you know, of a, of a commercial enterprise. And how do you, uh, you know, how do you effectively grow without losing that core spirit that, that makes it such a beautiful thing? Well, I, you know, I, that's a really good question. And I, th- I really believe that spirit still persists, even with, mm-hmm. you know, the, what, what we've seen with the growth is um, certainly the, you know, the, the growth of, of elite runners has, you know, gone through the, you know, a lot of guys that were collegiate marathoners, you know, really fast guys are now, you know, they're running 50K, 50 milers in insane times. I mean, you, you know, you flip through the pages of Ultra Running Magazine, and there's, you know, almost every race, there's a new course record set by, uh-huh. you know, some guy you've never heard of. So that's certainly growing. But what's really growing is just, is, is the middle, is people that you refer to that are just, you know, they they might've run eight or nine marathons and, you know, they're like, God, I want, I want to go beyond. I want to try an ultra. And these are, these are, you know, these are fathers, these are mothers, these are mm-hmm. business people. These are more, you know, everyday people that are really like looking to take it to the next level. And I think... Um, when they go to a race, you know, they're not sleeping in tents. Maybe they're staying in a hotel. But I think at the start of any race, that spirit is still there, regardless if you're one of the elites, you know, if you're one of the old timers or one of the newbies. I think that uh, ultra running spirit uh, is never going to go away. I just think because of the nature of what we're doing, it's it's so extreme. And I think you have a mutual respect for anyone who's towing the starting line with you because you know this person has sacrificed, they've mm-hmm. dedicated themselves, they've committed. No matter how much you're racing against them, you respect them on seven level. And, you know, uh, I've been at so many races where, you know, you're, you're racing head to head with someone for the first 70 miles. And then, you know, then they're bonking in a chair and you're almost saying, come on, you can do mm-hmm. it. I mean, I've seen some heroic stories of people who are competitors picking each other, <laughs> you know, off the ground saying you can finish this damn thing. So mm-hmm. at a point, 
you know, the human spirit comes through and it shines through brighter than anything else. And just, you know, the, the thought of helping another human and that camaraderie, I don't think that's ever going to go away in our sport, no matter how big it becomes. Right. Uh, about two weeks ago, <clears throat> I sat down with Jen Steinman, your friend Jen Steinman. Yeah, you're, Jen. You're, you're sitting there wearing the Four Deserts uh, jacket yeah, right yeah. now. And uh, we had a, a great uh, podcast chat about her movie, Desert Runners, uh, which, you know, I saw a couple of weeks ago. And, and that movie really is exactly what you just said. You know, it's four... Yeah, it's four or five. Four, uh, you know, really just normal people who decide they're going to tackle the four deserts, which is just, you, you know, one of the most extraordinary, you know, endurance feats you can possibly imagine. And they're not professional athletes. I think one of them had, had like never even run a, a marathon or a half marathon. And the movie chronicles like how they prepare and, and endure this crazy adventure, and which is an adventure that you had. Um, but it's exactly what you said, which is cool to see that. And, and it really, I think, blows the ceiling off the limitations that we put on ourselves. Because I think for the most part, um, we, you know, we're not limited by what other people are telling us. We're limited by what we tell ourselves. Yeah, and I, and I think that that mindset um, is the magic in ultra marathoning. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really it. It's, it's just, it's, you know, the first time I heard about someone running 100 miles... I couldn't get my head around it. It was such an expansive thought. I thought, hold it, you know, there's trickery here. No, no one can run 100. What do you mean? Uh-huh. I can't even drive 100 miles. I mean, like, where are the hotels? You know, how many weeks does it take them? And when they said, no, we just run 100 miles, and we start at Squaw Valley, and we run to Auburn, uh-huh. 100 miles, we cross the street, you know, the, the Rucky Chucky River. I'm thinking, that's ludicrous. I mean, that's, it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I got, I got to try this. <laughs> well, that's a, a good, uh, I know, that construction's like out of control. Great music going on <laughs> in the background here. Yeah, uh, That's a good place, I think, to launch into, you know, the Dean Karnaz's origin story for the three people listening who, who don't know who you are, who haven't heard it. So, you know, take us back to, you know, that kind of... Um, not mine, of course. Gets, I'm the it one gets who even better and better, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm the one who doesn't turn myself off. You know, because I'm all one of the things that is a big part of my story, and one of the you know common themes of this podcast is talking about those special moments in your life that change everything, or those line in the sand moments where you make a decision and set set about like a new trajectory that over time you know completely recolors your life experience. Well, you know, for me with, with running, I, you know, some of my fondest memories, my earliest memories are, are running. Literally. I remember running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. I'm laughing at this noise in the background, but <laughs> yeah, I mean the, yeah, that's how it kind of related to the world. I remember sitting in class, just being so bored and pent up and could not wait for school to get over so I could run home because I'd run through the park. And it was just, to me, it was the way I related to the world. I used to see people. I used to wave at people. And I ran a marathon when I was 14 years old and um, finished my uh, high school cross-country team uh, as a freshman. We, we won the state. And I hung up my running shoes and you know, pursued what I thought would bring me happiness, which we're kind of told will bring us happiness. You, know, you, go through, you, go to, you get a college degree. You know, you go to graduate school, you go to business school, you land a cush corporate job, and you're happy. That's your mm-hmm. road to happiness. 
And on my 30th birthday, it just came to a head. I realized I wasn't happy. And all Mm -hmm. these things I thought were going to bring me happiness were kind of making me miserable. I I didn't like who I was. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think, I think you use this quote a lot. I use it every time I, I, I give a talk which are the famous words of Henry David Thoreau, you know, the, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation and what is considered resignation is confirmed desperation. And it's such a powerful sentence, you know, and if it was true in his time, it's certainly, I think, more true now and fueled by Madison Avenue and social pressure and keeping up with the Joneses. But my whole life was premised upon uh, the pursuit of this, American dream as a recipe for happiness. And, you know, if my story is anything, it's, it's, it's an evolution to the realization of just how fallacious and empty that truly is. I, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, being Greek, I'll refer to the, uh, you know, the Oracle at Delphi that said, uh, know thyself. And, uh, I, I just looked inside and said, okay, Carnassus, you know, you love to run. It's simple. It's, 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 it's nothing. It's just running, but it's what you love to do and be true to what you love or you will live a life of quiet desperation. Make mm-hmm. a go of it. Um, make, you know, your, your, your passion, your vocation and, and make it your life. And that's kind of the road to happiness. And yeah, I walked out of that bar <laughs> 30 years old, hadn't run in 15 years, uh, you know, drunk 11 o'clock at night and said, damn it, I'm running 30 miles right now to celebrate my 30th Mm -hmm. birthday and take my life back. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So it was your 30th birthday and the bar was the Paragon. Was you it the know Paragon it. You bar? know it, yeah. So, so here's about, the thing. We're about the same age, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you know it, We're yeah. about the same age, and I will tell you this. I used to live down the street from the Paragon bar. That was my favorite bar. I was there three, four, five nights a week. And this was August of 92, right, when this happened? Yep, yep. I was working in San Francisco that summer, and I can't say with certainty, but I would imagine that there's a good chance, maybe like a 40% chance that I was at that bar that night. Because <laughs> I used to- I should have taken you running with me. Out there, every, uh, it was not pretty. Dean, I could I I have you. turned your life around a little bit earlier had but you run with me. Yeah. I, didn't know, I didn't know that it was the Paragon Bar. And then I was like, you know, I know Dean, but I should probably do like, let me just do a little homework, make sure like I'm crossing my T's here and I'm reading some stuff on the internet. And I, and I, I, didn't, I never knew that it was the Paragon Bar. And then I saw that, I was like, oh my God, really? You, that bar? You probably know every footstep yeah. I took because I ran right down to Half Moon Bay. I mean, ran on Skyline, uh, uh, hung a right on, on uh, the 92 and run right to Half Moon Bay. And mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I'll admit I had a, a bit of a drinking problem. I mean, nothing like yours <laughs> after yeah. I read your book. I'm like, because, you know, you explained to me about uh, kind of your, you know, your your addiction. And I thought, mm-hmm. God, you know, Rich seems like a pretty even kill guy to me. Doesn't seem, you know, compulsive, obsessive. And then I well. read your book. I'm yeah. like, oh, God, <laughs> here's a real story. It was very mm-hmm. revealing. Yeah, very, very powerful. I mean, very, um, I have so much admiration for you. Uh, changing your life the way you did because that is not an easy thing to do. Mm, thanks, man. Well, you know, I think that that uh, the most powerful thing about your story, like I can read the 50 and 50 and, you know, like all these incredible feats, but what I emotionally tapped into was like you being at that bar and making that decision, you know, you kind of, because you were leading a life that was very analogous to the, the life that I was leading and reaching that point where you're like, this is not working for me. And, and what makes me happy happens to be these super simple things that we're told as adults are kind of, you know, child's play, right? You're not going to get the support of, you know, your colleagues for saying, yeah, I think I want to just go out and like, I just like how the sun feels on my back or I like, you know, what, what, what my body feels like when I jump into a swimming pool. Like these are not, these are not things that adults should be aspiring to. Right. That's exactly right. Um, what I found with running, though, is kind of interesting in that um, it's very identifiable. Like uh, everyone has run. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when someone hears you ran 100 miles, you know, they, they can relate to it because they've run maybe a mile, you know, when they were in, in, in middle school or something or, you know, they, they've run themselves or they might run right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they they can relate to it, so it's it's an identifiable thing, and they know it hurts. <laughs> they know there's shared pain there. So uh, running is a little bit different than say surfing or something like that. I mean, uh, running is is an identifiable thing, and certainly marathoning. You know, the growth of we've talked about the growth of, of ultra marathoning, but the growth of marathoning, half marathoning, uh, you know, five Ks globally is is gone through the roof. So I think more and more people are seeking these sort of outlets. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, f- to have a more fulfilling life. Yeah. Right. It's certainly the most populist thing, but taking, taking it back to, you know, that, that evening at the Paragon, there was no idea of running a hundred miles in that. And there was just this very primal yearning for something more real and tangible and visceral in your life. Well, I was drunk. Yeah, well, yeah but even if you <laughs> weren't on bad tequila, yeah. Even, even if you weren't, you were you had this kind of you know sort of hole in your spirit saying, "I'm I'm not living the life that I want to lead." Yeah, I, I think it. You know, there was certainly at least a year of of that sort of quiet contemplation where I'm like, "Is you know, you look at the path you're on. Um, you're not happy. You're you're conflicted." You don't like what you're doing. I hated going to business meetings. Mm-hmm. I felt so out of place. I didn't feel like I was in, you know, I felt like I was awkward in my own skin. I didn't enjoy it. And it was just kind of forced misery. And I thought, is this really how you want to spend the rest of your life? And it just percolated, you know, my 30th birthday. I think a lot of, a lot of people don't come to this realization, like you said, <laughs> until they're, you know, on Social Security. And, it, you know, at that time, it's, it's kind of too late. But I think that's changing. You know, I think that this, you know, if you can call it an affliction or sort of, you know, yearning of the soul is something that, that I'm seeing in people more and more. And I think that the Internet has, you know, really kind of facilitated people um, 
educating themselves or becoming aware that there are other ways of, of living their life. And because the internet allows people to sort of create these self-style careers or telecommute or what have you, it's opening up a world of possibilities that, you know, it's, this is not the madman era, you know, we, and the days of going to, you know, a cush corporate job and your 401k, like that's really not so much the path for most people anymore. It's not as predictable or reliable as it once was. And I think people are looking for more personally significant career paths. And that's why, you know, I think what you've done is so inspiring. And I think, again, to go back to this kind of neatly packaged narrative around you, there's this idea that, oh, you, you ran 30 miles that night and then, you know, you snap your fingers and you're winning bad water. But that's not the reality of your story. I mean, it was you continued to work a, 90, a nine to five for you know several years after that, and it was many many years before you know you became the professional that you are today, and, and you know a writer and somebody who's winning these races. Yeah, I mean it was a series of, of baby steps, and um, you know it it the the reality of of doing what we're doing is that it's friggin' scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there's comfort in having a. a a 401 matching K program uh, and having healthcare benefits and having a paycheck um, to step away from those things is scary. It's mm. terrifying. I, I got to admit, I was terrified. Like, how am I going to do this? Uh, can I do it? There's a lot of self doubt. And I think a lot of people are plagued by that self doubt. Um, but you're also right that a lot of people are following their passion these days. I've noticed, a, I think, a paradigm shift in the past decade of people who are willing, at least tepidly to try new things and mm-hmm. try, you know, side careers even, try it part-time, um, you know, taking on something different and seeing if they can transition that into their full-time, um, their full-time vocation. But yeah, it took me, you know, about, I would say about six to seven years of kind of tiptoeing around the edges before I just jumped, jumped in wholeheartedly. And I'll never mm-hmm. forget the day I did. Um, you know, I sat down with my wife who you, who you met mm-hmm. and uh, I said, Julie, you know, I'm, uh, I've got some some kind of, you know, tough news, some scary news. I'm going to, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to resign and pursue my passion full time. And she looked at me and she said, I wonder what took you so long. <laughs> so, I mean, have a very supportive wife. Well, you're yeah. very smart to marry a woman named Julie. <laughs> that's my wife's name. Uh, but that makes all the difference, you know, having a partner who can kind of see, you know, the best version of you and, and support that. You know, I certainly had that. And it took me a while before I was really willing to, you know, cut the reins on the law career. And it was the same thing. Like, I've been waiting for you to do this all along. But it is terrifying. And it doesn't happen overnight. So I think that, you know, for, for people that are listening out there who are tiptoeing around the edges of this, it's okay to start slow. It's not, it's not like, hey, quit your job tomorrow. Um, I think it's a process of, 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 of taking the time uh, to really connect with who you are and develop that deep understanding of, of, of you know what it is that makes you tick. Like, kind of peeling back the layers and finding you know what is my most authentic self? What is my legacy? What am I here to express? What is unique to me that makes me happy? And then setting us you know setting about creating some kind of long term plan towards making that happen. But it begins with those tiny little steps that you, you know, it's, it's laying those bricks down brick by brick over many years. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, 
you know, I think everyone has a passion. You know, everyone, if you look inside, I mean, every, there's something that excites everyone, whatever it might be. It might be watching movies, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, then pursue a career in, you know, movie making or movie reviewing, whatever it is that you are most passionate about. So I think it takes a bit of introspection to look inside to say, you know, what really gets my blood um, you know, moving. What what gets me out of bed in the morning? Um, most people probably say, ah, it's not it's not my job. Although some people are are hugely passionate about their job, and that's mm-hmm. that's great. If you can find a, a a job that's rewarding, self you know, self rewarding, that that's you know certainly the the goal I think of of any person. I'm jealous of those people. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it, life would be easier if that was. The you case, don't want to be a, a a Java programmer. Yeah, <laughs> Come know. on. Um, yeah, but I think that it's important to to really invest in that interior work. Otherwise, you could think that you want something and end up barking up the wrong tree. I think you know that I, mean? I think you know do something adventurous and, and do something out of character and to me, you know, signing up for a a, a marathon, <laughs> you know, or even a half marathon if you're not a runner is is it's going to it's going to break down barriers that you had in your head about what is possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that's why running is so symbolic in endurance sports. You know, try a triathlon. Um, you're going to experience new experiences. You're going to see new things. You're going to, you know, you're going to have a range of emotions that are so different than anything you've you've experienced before. That those lessons carry over into life. I think mm-hmm. uh, they carry over into business. So I think that um, you know, biting off more than you can chew is is really a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, when we uh, when we shared that car ride after Badwater and we had to go back to where, <laughs> where you were dropping me off where my car was, I think we were in the car for a couple hours, um, we had a fun talk. And, and one of the things that came up was this, this idea, you know, I think people project onto you and, and, and they see you and they think, oh, you're surrounded by this sort of cadre of handlers that are managing your life and taking care of all the details and, and kind of, you know, the fact that that's a complete illusion, <laughs> you know, like you're here in your house, you're going out running every day. There, there isn't some, you know, assistant following you around, answering your emails for you and posting on your Facebook page, you know, talk a little bit about sort of perception versus reality. I think, yeah, you, you know, people are always shocked when I, I respond to their emails, like, uh-huh. hold it. Is this really Dean? Like I get that all the time or on Facebook. If I, you know, if I actually, you know, respond to a comment, they're like, hold it. Is this really you? Um, but you're right. I mean, I'm, I, I purposely don't want to be surrounded by a lot of, of people like that and a lot of mob. I mean, one, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a rock star. I'm not a movie star. You know, I'm, uh, it, it's a pretty simple life that I live and I want to keep it that way. And, you know, I've, I've certainly been a corporate guy and, you know, I've, I've run a company and I know... Um, what that takes, and it's just not me. I, I don't like all that incoming noise. I mean, I'm an introvert, and I like nothing more than just to go, you know, run for a couple hours and just get in my own head. So I, I realize that, and I know, um, you know, what it takes to succeed and get things to the next level. And you know, sometimes I am surrounded by people, and sometimes mm-hmm. I am ha- handled, but that's not my whole life. I mean, those are very isolated um, circumstances, and I prefer to keep it that way. So I think in that regard. I've done a good job at, you know, at knowing my strengths and my weaknesses and, and trying to, um, you know, uh, arrange my schedule and my life that, you know, that plays into my strengths and minimizes my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. 
When you look at that, though, and you, you're evaluating your weaknesses, I mean, where do you see, you know, there is no stasis. We're either growing or we're regressing. So w- when you kind of look at your own life, I mean, what are you looking at to say, you know what, this needs work, like I need to work on growing more in this regard, whether it's running or just in, in your personal life? Yeah, well, you know, my wife has helped me a lot. I mean, people say, you know, did you learn a lot in business school, you know, this and that. And I, you know, I say, well, no, I learn a lot from other people that are close to me. And she's taught me a lot about the uh, the grace of living, um, of of not being in the spotlight, of, of being kind of a humble servant. Um, you know, someone once told me they gave money anonymously. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God, you know, why wouldn't you want the recognition? And they're like, Try and do a, an, a, an act of good for someone and don't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Don't expect anything in return. Do it for your own soul. And that was really, it was, it was a paradigm shift for me because I thought, but don't you want to be recognized for your contributions and this and that? And to not be recognized, just to do good just because it's good and it makes you feel good and it's good for your soul, it's something now that I, I do a whole lot of. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know, you know, I'll tell you this story, and it's, it's kind of weird, but a lot of times I run with uh, dollar bills in my hydration pack, and sometimes I'll pass a car and I'll just put a random dollar bill under their windshield wiper. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how cool is it for someone to come out, you know, their car's not broken into, Someone slipped a, a dollar bill, like yeah. a good luck dollar bill. Wait a the, minute. What's wrong with my car? Like, why, <laughs> where's the and ding? Not, yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I think there's, you know, in, in doing those sort of things, I mean, I, I think it was, um, you know, it was Plato had said, who said it's, uh, it's better to, uh, to suffer wrong than to do wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, doing right uh, and not expecting recognition, not even looking for it, in fact, purposefully, um, you know, avoiding the spotlight on it is, is really, it's self-affirming. It's, it's really, um, it helps you be a better you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, service in the construct of recovery, which is kind of, you know, the principles around which I structure my life is central towards not just being a, a sober human being, but to, to really being happy. You know, I think if you're lacking service in your life in some way that you're missing out on a cornerstone of what it means to be an actualized human and, and fulfilled in your life. And service is an esteemable act and, you know, you get self-esteem from performing esteemable acts. So if that's missing in your life, I think that that's a crucial thing for people to look at. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, we're, we're, I think the way we're raised influences who we are so much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I look at, um, you know, uh, my wife and how pure she is and how, like, her default behavior, she doesn't have to think about it. It's kind of like the way she was raised by some great parents, some very upstanding parents. And sometimes, you know, when I, when I go to act in certain ways, it's almost like I've got to check myself. Like, is this the right way to act? Where she just moves through it gracefully. It's just kind of, it's already pre-programmed into her. So I've learned a lot at just watching her behavior and, and you know, emulating a lot of that. Um, you know, the other thing that, that you and I have discussed uh, as far as, you know, the recipe for happiness is just, is being present, is being in the now. And I think fewer and fewer people are, are actually in the present state, in the here and now, at any given moment, in any day. I mean, the, the number of distractions uh, in our lives these days, are are it's insane, especially for our kids. I mean, I look mm-hmm. at, 
you know, my kids, I mean, you know, my son gets 500 texts, you know, and Snapchats mm-hmm. and, you know, Instagrams a month. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that, that's so much coming at you. You know, when are you just like present? Or, you know, and I find that most people are either thinking about the future or reflecting on the past instead of just enjoying the present moment in time, the, the now. And I think that's, that's really something I've um, come to appreciate is being more and more in the now. It doesn't mean you, you don't have goals, <laughs> mm-hmm. you don't have aspirations, but just celebrating every second of, of that present moment in time for what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly difficult to be present. You know, it's not a default setting for almost anybody. It requires diligence and practice, I think. But running is a great facilitator. You know, it, it really, it, that's why I love trail running. It just allows you to really just be in the moment of what you're doing. And then when you're in that headspace uh, or lack of headspace, you know, even that's where, you know, you have beautiful insights and inspirations that, that come into your life. But it's, you know, we're not, gene- we're not genetically hardwired to handle all the stimulus, you know, with technology coming at us. And it's really, uh, you know, it can, it can erode your soul, you know, if you're not diligent about creating healthy boundaries around it. And I've noticed it in myself, you know, I get caught up and I'm looking on the Twitter and whatever. And, and, my wife will be like, you know, you've got to put that down. And I realize, like, I, I have an addictive relationship to it, you know, that I really need to, like, look at and evaluate. Well, I, I like your wife's you know? style, yeah. yeah. No, but I, I mean, I, I think that uh, evolutionary, from an evolutionary standpoint, we've gone, we're going to go in a very interesting um, direction from here in that, you're right, we are so far removed from the human experience in our daily lives uh, that it's, it, you know, so many people, it's, it's hard for me to relate to because, I mean, they don't understand the weather. I mean, they, you know, when you run, not only do your feet physically touch the earth, so you're touching the earth, you know, you, you're smelling the smells, you're watching, you know, you, the humidity, mm-hmm. um, you know, the nuances of the wind, you know, you're watching cloud formations, you learn these things. And, most people don't know these things these days. I mean, it's, 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 to me, it's phenomenal how removed they are from an everyday human experience. I mean, if you think about, you know, like the Native American Indians, how they related to this earth versus how we do today, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the things that, that used to matter to a human um, that were essential for survival are completely removed from our lives entirely. Yeah, we don't, we don't have to care, you know, <laughs> no. and then that drives... That drives choices that we make every day, which you know are not necessarily in our best interest or in the best interest of the planet, because we're not thinking about those things. They're they're not they're not a concern. They're not relevant to our survival or our even our happiness. You know, it's like whether it's cloudy or sunny outside. Well, I'm inside and it's air conditioned, and it doesn't matter. And, and you know, space exploration. I mean, to me, that is like the most foreign thing to do to a human system is mm-hmm. put them somewhere <laughs> they were never engineered or meant to be. I mean, you know, even the, the you know the the experience of flying in an airplane and you know looking at the Earth from the sky is a completely new human experience. I mean, you know, three hundred years ago. <laughs> Uh, you, you couldn't do that. Well, I mean, decades ago, you couldn't. Yeah. And I, what's amazing, and what I've noticed when I get on an airplane, is people just pull the shade down, and if you pull it up, people <laughs> are annoyed. And it's like, 
you have this ability to look down on our planet, which is something that humankind throughout history has never been able to do. You know, you get to look down and see the earth from a great distance and, and how extraordinary that is and how we as human beings just adapt to that and go, eh, you know, I'm, I've lost interest in that already, which is like insane. Well, I, I just want to you hug know? you because hallelujah that someone else looks out the <laughs> yeah, damn window know, these days. Know. I'm like... I keep, you know, yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, people are, are, were so happy they didn't have to turn off their iPads now, you know, with the new FAA regulations. I'm like, geez, you know, I just cracked that window an inch and let me look down. I mean, there's Yosemite. I mean, you were flying over Yosemite Valley. <laughs> What's more important, you know, your, right. your movie or looking down at, uh, you know, Half Dome? I mean, come on. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, back to this idea uh, of service you know, kind of talking about these, you know, sort of acts that you take in anonymity. Um, but, you know, a lot of what you do is just, what you do professionally is of service. You go to these races, you're hanging out with all these people, you're inspiring all these people, they send you these emails and these letters. And, and I would imagine that's extremely gratifying to know that you have, you know, played a part small or large in somebody's personal transformation. So I'm interested in how you uh, kind of navigate that and, and maintain, you know, sort of check your ego and stay right, right-sized about the whole thing. Because if the service aspect is ego-fueled, then that's kind of undermining the whole point of the whole thing. And I would imagine that, you know, you're around all these people, they're pulling on you, they want, you know, they want to have this interaction with you, and it'd be very easy to kind of get inflated over that kind of thing. Uh, I guess, I mean, to be honest, I, I still am completely shocked by people that come up to me and say mm-hmm. things. I, like, I still don't, I don't equate me with what they're saying. Like, when someone says, you changed my life, I kind of look at them like, how? I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I just wrote about doing what I love. How, you know, if that had such a profound impact on you, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply moved, but it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't do anything like, it's not, it's not like they're, they're fawning fans like, Oh, you know, like following a rock star or a movie star. I mean, I think they, um, there's this mutual, there's a kindred spirit there that keeps me grounded. And, you know, I, to be honest, I enjoy it. I mean, sometimes it's like drinking from a fire hose. Like when, I, like when I go to New York City Marathon this weekend, you know, there'll be a line of 400 people um, for, you know, for a signing of mine. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is, that is, it's torture because everyone has a great story. And when people come up to you and they say, you know, geez, you know, my, my best friend uh, just died of cancer and I'm going to run this race in his honor for his family and you know he really admired you it's so to me conflicting just you know to look at this guy and just kind of want to hug him and have a beer with him and you know there's 300 people behind right. him that are all waiting to tell a similar story mm-hmm. and that to me just it it that is the hardest part of what i do mm-hmm. it's it's not hearing these stories it's just knowing there's there's so many of these stories and it's got to happen so quickly. I mean, how do you devote the, you know, the respectful amount of bandwidth to each one of them? It, it's, I don't know how to do it. And I, you know, I'm not trained on how to do it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, I just, I'm touched by these stories that you saw it even at Badwater. I mean, mm-hmm. these people move me and they're great people. They're people I'd want to sit down and, you know, have, have a cup of coffee or beer with. So, um, I, 
I don't think I'll ever tire of it. People say it doesn't get exhausting. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, just this morning when I was running, some guy, <laughs> unsuspected, you know, this biker whizzes past me. He was just like on a bike commute. He didn't even look that fit. You know, next thing I know, there's a guy riding next to me. Like, oh, my God, you're, you're Dean, aren't you? I, oh, my, I've read your stories, and you're incredible. And you know, he wants to take a selfie with me. <laughs> and, I, you know, it's kind of cool. Whatever. You know, I'm out for a run, this guy. Yeah, and that happens all the time. It happens in airports. It happens in obscure places. And it's, it's always great people with great stories. So mm -hmm. I don't think it's ever going to boost my ego. And I don't, I don't think I'll ever, I guess, grow accustomed to the fact that that I've influenced people in such a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I like that. I mean, it's it's almost like you have to take yourself out of the context. Like there's there's the message which transcends the individual. Well, that that's you know one thing with my with ultra marathon man it, that blows me away is um, how many people have come up to me that don't run that say, wow, this book has really changed my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it's just, it's to your point, it's, it's, it's beyond running. It's bigger than running. Well, running is a metaphor. You know, running is a metaphor for transformation and, you know, finding purpose and meaning in your life in whatever shape or form that is. Like you said it earlier, you want to be a, film, you want to be a filmmaker or whatever it is. You want to play the banjo. You want to be a stand-up comic. You want to write a book. You know, the ultra marathon is kind of that, you know, represents all of those things. It's just your version of that for the reader. I guess more than anything, um, it gives people permission <laughs> to follow their own path. Mm -hmm. Or uh, to take a, take a leap of faith. Or take to a take leap a of risk. faith, yep. I mean, they look at it and they say, wow, he, he did it. I, you know, darn it, I can try it as well. And more power mm -hmm. to him, yeah. What do you think it is about our kind of innate um, need to feel challenged, to be challenged, to, you know, get uncomfortable. Like it was this sense of security that was making you miserable. It was all this comfort. You know, it's like we're in this culture where it's all about ease, you know, get the big screen TV and here's a couch that's more comfortable than your other couch and look at the seats in this car and all of that. It's all designed to kind of lull us into this sense of, of comfort and implicit in that is that that's what's going to make us happy. And, and it couldn't be more different. So what is it about that sort of embracing discomfort and an adventure that is so crucial to the equation of being fulfilled? Well, I think we're never happier than when we're struggling. Um, we never feel more alive. I mean, any endurance athlete can tell you, you know, some of the most poignant moments in their life is when they're dealing with adversity and struggling. And I think that that's the essence uh, of life. And, you know, comfort brings nothing with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it. It has no internal reward whatsoever. So I think that once you struggle and once you overcome adversity, um, you, you realize the power in it and you see uh, how much more that stimulates you than, than just taking the easy road. And you seek that out. Uh, I think that, you know, it's kind of to Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs. I mean, you know, self-actualization, you know, a man must be all that a man can be. And I think, you know, the, the Marines certainly capitalized on that one when they say be all that you can be, <laughs> which is just a summary of, you know, what Maslow said. And I think people, I think that's just the human nature is you want to see how far you can go. You want to be the best you that you can be. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is to step out of the comfort zone. 
is to test yourself. Right. Yeah. But yeah. but but the comfort zone is where I feel like we're all trying we're all being herded, you know, if you turn the television on. Yeah, I mean the path, you know, the easy path is certainly something that uh is is <laughs> is easy to do and I mean advertisers play into that. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that uh, you know, like I said, it's just, it's, it's kind of that gateway just to try one thing that's a little bit outside your comfort zone where you have to struggle that, that, you know, that gives you that internal feeling of gratitude and reward that you want more and more of it. I think mm-hmm. like, you know, to your earlier point, more and more people are, I think are, uh, realizing this and discovering. And I think that's why there's been such an explosion in endurance sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And looking at your life, I mean, your legacy is intact. You know, you could stop doing this now. Everybody knows your story. There's, there's very little that you haven't done in the ultra running world. So what gets you out of bed in the morning excited? And what is the, the next challenge for you? Well, I think that, um, you know, I'm largely going in the perhaps the same direction you are. I know you're coming out with a new book that's a mm-hmm. cookbook. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is almost um, not dumb down my reputation as this insane endurance guy, but to um, to broaden my reputation, to to motivate the masses, if you will. So you know, even go beyond the core, beyond the grassroots to to the mass roots, to really influence um, you know Middle America, if you will, to become healthier and more active. Uh, I think the world. Honestly, I believe the world would be a better place if we were all healthier and active and more active. I think that you, you, you know, your your worldview is is broader. Your your uh, your demeanor is more pleasant. You treat others better when you're healthy. And mm-hmm. you know, we see people that are grossly out of shape, and it's almost like their life is taken away from them. Mm-hmm. So if I can try to influence this country to become, you know, this actually, you know, it's not just. This country that's suffering, I mean, there's a phenomenon called globesity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's global. I mean, every developed nation I travel to, um, there's massive problems with obesity. They're some of the number one health concerns. And if I can influence, pe- you know, a reverse of that and for people to come healthier and more active, then that's what I want to do. So, um, you know, what I'm going to try to do from here on forward is, is speak to the masses um, you know, speak in a language that will inspire someone to, you know, take up the couch to 5K, mm-hmm. um, you know, adapt a healthier uh, diet and, and also give them the tools and the resources uh, so they can do that. Mm-hmm. It is interesting that this obesity epidemic that we're mired in is being exported across the globe. And I've, I've done quite a bit of international travel this past year and, and, and you see it. And you land in these foreign ports of call, and the first thing you see is Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then it's a McDonald's and Carl's Jr. I was in the Middle East. I saw TGI Fridays, <laughs> you know, and it's insane. And they're experiencing uh, the deleterious health effects that they've never experienced in the history of their, their culture. And they're, they're not as up to speed on health as we are because it's new, you know, and this is tragic, well, it's, it's not even developed worlds. It's, you know, I just read a study that even in underdeveloped mm-hmm. nations, um, you know, nations we typically thought of were, you know, famine, um, there's obesity problems now. I mean, the kids in, um, you know, third world countries are getting diabetes, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, hypertension, you know, in their teens. So it's, it's, it's a global issue. 
And I think a lot of it starts with awareness. Um, Rich, I'm, you know, I, I, when I ran across America, it was funny. I, I got an invite to, uh, to run through the White House. <laughs> Unbelievable as it seems. Wow. You know, Michelle Obama had her person call me and said, you know, I want to meet this guy when he runs through Washington, D.C. Come on, you know, will Dean run by the White House? So I was literally the first guy to run into the White House. So, oh, I mean, you actually did that? I didn't oh, know that. Oh, it's bizarre. Wow. I got, yeah, I mean, the Secret Service opened the gates. They're like, come on in, Dean. I ran right through the halls of the White House, uh-huh. hung a left right out to the South Lawn, and there was Michelle Obama waiting for me. Um, but she said something I thought that was really insightful. She said, you know, Dean, um, what you're doing matters. She said, you know, we, we can't legislate this country back into shape. You know, sure, we can, t- you know, pass laws to take soda pop out of, um, you know, vending machines in schools and, and this and that, but people have got to want to eat better and they've got to want to exercise, and you're leading by example. Um, we need people to set example. We don't need politicians that are not in shape, that are not eating well, mm-hmm. telling us, you know, here's the law that you got to eat well because people won't do it. So um, I think that it takes more, it's going to take, you know, it's going to take a village. It's going to take an army of people that um, promote this idea of, of, you know, wanting to be better. And I think I think that's going to change. I think with awareness, the obesity problem eventually is going to change, but it starts with the kids. So I do a lot of talks to schools across, mm-hmm. you know, across the world. I was just in Greece and I spoke to a number of schools in Greece. Um, you know, even though I was doing this ultra marathon, I mean, I made time in my schedule to go to these schools and talk to these kids. And, um, you know, I think it's going to take more and more activity like that by everyday people like me to really turn this thing around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wake up in the morning and, and, and I think, what, what am I doing and what can I do that will have the biggest impact on the most number of people in terms of helping them transition their lives or transform their lives to be healthier and more active? And then that butts up against training. So I'm like, well, if I'm on my bike for five hours a day getting ready for this race, is that the most effective use of my time in carrying this message? Sometimes it's yes. And right now I'm finding it to be no, you know, like sitting here with you, I think is a better use of my time today than as much as I'd like to be running up that mountain right now. You know <laughs> you, what I mean? I think you and that, me both, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, this conversation will be more helpful to people than whether or not I can make it to the peak over there today. And I struggle with that because I love, you know, I love competing and I love the training. I love everything about it. And I don't want to lose that, but I'm also trying to sort of embrace this idea that, you know, I do have a little bit of a platform and I I feel a responsibility to serve that effectively. We think alike. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, I struggle with those same challenges. And um, that is probably the hardest thing for me to deal with right now is you know, I, I want to go and train like crazy. I mean, it's kind of like I feel pent up, like I mm-hmm. should be out there training. But then again, um, you know, I, I did a couple of the interviews this morning um, on, you know, I did one with ESPN and they're talking about my involvement with uh, Action for Healthy Kids. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, it's, it's worth it. I spent an hour with someone on a phone call that, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, these route questions, but um, without you know spreading that word, um, without the media and the power of the media, um, you're not going to influence people. And I think influencing people to me is more important than you know winning another trophy. <laughs> right. And it's a hard trade-off. Yeah. I know one of your big lifetime goals is this idea of running uh, a marathon in every country 
in the world, right? And it, it seems like that's sort of been hanging out there for a while now. And so I'm interested in, in you know, whether you're going to make that happen. Is that being delayed? Is it logistical? Or is it because of what we're talking about right now that it's not happening today? Well, I'll, just, I'll start by answering your question. It's, it's a combination of each of those. And then I'll tell the listeners, um, you know, what I'm hoping to do. And that is to run a marathon in every country of the world in a one-year time frame. Mm-hmm. So kind of doing what I did with the 50 marathons in 50 states in the U.S., but going global. And, um, you know, right now there are 109 countries that actually have organized marathons, and there's 198 total countries. So the logistics... There's only 198? Yeah. There was like 205. Well, it well, changes every year. It changes every year, and, you know, it depends on how you, you know, divvy up countries. I mean, uh, you, you know, you look at the, the UK, which is considered one country, but, you know, you can't just run a marathon in, in Britain because, you know, the Irish <laughs> will get teed off and then the Scottish will and the Welch will. So, you know, there's, there's four nations, mm-hmm. um, might just be considered one country, but I'm going to run all four nations. And yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. It's, it's been a challenge that is, uh, is tapping me out. It's, it's, it's beyond me. I've, you know, I've hit so many uh, hurdles and so many stumbling blocks, um, you know, between trying to get all the passports and permits to get into every country and then finding sponsors and everything. I mean, um, yeah, that's not a cheap affair. No, it's not a cheap affair. And it, it's, it's could be a, a very incredible affair in that I'm inviting, you know, the, the local country folks from each of the, the nations to come out and run with me, mm-hmm. maybe not the full marathon, but some duration thereof. And I think, I think the world could use something like that right now. I mean, you look at the conflict that's going on, you know, maybe we should stop um, shooting at each other and, and go for a run together. I think it's the perfect marriage of what we were just talking about, the advocacy and the endurance, because it involves the travel. So your feet on the ground in all these different places where you'll get a bunch of media and you'll have the ability to impact people, you know, profoundly in, in their port of call and you get to then take it to the next country. And the story is so fantastic. So I think that's a great, uh, investment of your time and energy because it, it is, it is the perfect marriage of the two worlds that, you know, you're trying to impact people and you're also, you have this love of sport and here they are, you know, perfectly married. It, so I, it, hope, I hope you can make it happen. I, I wish that I was wealthy enough. I could finance it myself mm-hmm. and I would, but the reality is that I'm not. So I've got to find that, um, you know, the right sponsors to work with that, um, you know, that, uh, their, their philosophies are aligned with mine and, you know, that, uh, it's a very authentic relationship. I've certainly, you know, the North face who's been one of my sponsors for mm-hmm. a long time has said they want to play. Um, they can't afford the whole thing. Uh, but I think, you know, the North Face is the perfect expedition company to support something like this. I need to find some other sponsors um, where they see a benefit. I'm not naive. I mean, it's, there's, you know, it's... Yeah, there has to be an ROI. There's got to be a commercial... Have you thought about crowdfunding that sort of extra portion that you would need? Because that could be interesting. It, it could be. And a lot of people have, have written to me and said, you know, I would support this. Um, I still haven't gotten comfortable with the, the you know, this whole... This crowdfunding thing. I don't uh, know. Talk I just, to your kids. Get, yeah. over you get over that. I know there, it's <laughs> I a weird, weird. thing because yeah. you're asking people to give you money to do this thing. But I think yeah. that that this is where all of this is headed. And I think there'd be a lot of people who would feel uh, 
great about supporting something like this. And I think the piece that you're missing that I understand where you're coming from. Like it feels like a selfish endeavor. Like why should somebody else pay for this thing that I want to do? That's fun. But, but I think it gives, it allows people to be connected to the journey themselves and they can sort of take a small piece of ownership in that and feel a sense of pride that they helped facilitate this extraordinary thing. So I'd encourage you to think about it. Well, I know um, with, you know, the, all, all I've got to reflect back on is the, you know, the 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we invited other runners to come join me um, at marathons. And, you know, because it was, a lot of these marathons were self-organized, you know, like in Iowa right, on Tuesday, right. where's a marathon? So we contacted the race directors for the most prominent marathon in that state and said, you know, when we're in your state on this day, will you recreate your marathon? I mean, will you set up your official starting line? Uh, let us follow your sanctioned certified course and finish at your official finish line so that we had a record, you know, mm-hmm. of, of completing this marathon. And we had uh, permits for up to 50 people to run with me at all these, you know, recreated marathons. You can go on, a, on active and just sign up to register. And <laughs> we, after about 10 marathons, every single marathon was completely sold out. And we had waiting lists sometimes of 200 people. It was such a great endeavor and so many runners turned out. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I see people all the time with, they've got their Endurance 50 t-shirt on. They're like, that was the best marathon. You remember that? We were in Kentucky on Thursday and it was raining and there was 50 of us. And right. it was it was just, the, I'll never forget that experience. So perhaps you're right. Perhaps people would. Well, that could be like, it would almost be like a hybrid uh, Kickstarter sort of thing because you could say, come and run with me when I'm in this country if it's not a sanctioned marathon and maybe, you know, a portion of those funds could just go towards supporting the overall adventure. So they're getting something out of it. They're getting an experience out of it, but it's also contributing to the overall goal. Well, see, now I've learned something from this interview. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I've I've kind of, you know, I've, uh, it's the Peter principle. I've, I've risen to my level of incompetence trying to get this thing pulled off and uh, maybe that's what I need to do is, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. Well, if there's anything I can do to help you with that, I'd be happy to. (laughs) How big is your paycheck? How big is your bank account? Yeah, (laughs) Not so big. (laughs) North Korea. (laughs) How's that happening? Oh, you know, North Korea, um, you know, Syria, Mm -hmm. uh, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, the list goes on. Um, People have been incredibly supportive in those countries. And the State Department has been wonderful. I mean, they've said... We're completely behind this and, you know, we'll help you where we can. The problem is when there's something like, you know, ISIS or another global crisis, which yeah. seemed to be endless this last year, they just say, you know, Dean, we, we're sorry, we got to go dark. I mean, we can't, you know, we've got a, a major crisis on our hands. Um, we just can't, you know, devote any bandwidth to your project right now. We're completely behind it when, you know, when things settled to simmer down a bit. Well, you know, but it seems like it's been ongoing. This is where you call Michelle Obama up and say, remember what you told me on the South Lawn? Yeah. Time to call that favor in. If you want me to be that inspiration. That political capital I built up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, uh, what is something about you that never gets asked that you, I mean, you do all these interviews, it's the same questions over and over and over again. And, and maybe you read stuff about yourself in the media and you're like... They're not getting it right. They're not seeing it or they're, they're misquoting me or, you know, what's the question that you wish someone would ask you that, that never does or what people, you know, don't really know about the real Dean. 
You can I, say I think nothing. I, you you know, can say nothing. It's all. You want to hear about my, susi- mm. my suspicious mole? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I think to um, to your earlier question, I think some people think that you know I'm in it for the money and I'm in it just for Dean. A lot of people used to say, you know, he's just in it for Dean. And I think that, um, you, you know, you've discovered, and as anyone who knows me, that that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. It's, that's, you know, I'm not in it for me. I'm in it because it's what I love to do, and I love to help others be the best that they can be. Um, you know, also, I think that I don't have an ego. I think some people think he's a big egomaniac, and I think you've discovered I, I don't have an ego. And I'm not surrounded by, you know, people say, oh, you're, you know, your publicist is doing a great job. You get mm-hmm. so much coverage. I'm like, Publicist, you know, moi. <laughs> what publicist? I don't have a publicist, uh, so it's I've you know I've kind of built everything I've got on my own. I'm I'm just really a simple guy. I mean, this might shock a lot of people. I don't even own a car. You don't? I don't own a car. No, I mean, look wow. at you. You're like you don't? Yeah, I mean, um, I I had a sponsor, Volkswagen, and it, you know our our contract came up for renewal. I'm like, you know, guys, I, I just I don't. I'm sorry. I don't feel good about this sponsorship. I got to, you know, they gave me a brand new car. I'm like, I, I don't drive. I mean, I literally do not drive. So I, I don't feel good about, you know, the sponsorship. So when you need to go, uh, like you're going out to eat, like you just run down to the restaurant and go, <laughs> yeah, go pick up milk at the grocery store. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I have different sized backpacks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like literally that. do. And you know, the only time I need to ride is getting to the airport. And I just, I, I have a guy that takes me to the airport and a guy brings me home. Other than that, I, I really just run everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about living where I live. I mean, it's all accessible. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is the perfect place for you. Um, we got to wrap it up here, but, uh, I want to, I want to kind of, um, end this with, with a question, uh, which has to do with, transformation. You know, I think there's a lot of people that listen to the show who are struggling with how to make changes in their own life. They're inspired by your story. They see, you know, how you were able to kind of transform your life wholesale. And I think the big stumbling block for a lot of people is how do I start? You know, like what's, what's something that, that I can do today that can shift this energy or help me, you know, see my way through towards a different life experience. So if there's any kind of um, tangible tools that have been helpful to you that might be inspirational or helpful to the people that are listening, I'd love to hear it. Well, I'm going to get somewhat granular and hopefully this will be, you know, useful information, not just kind of high-minded stuff. But I think that, you know, we, we are the product of our habits. And I think that um, you need to look at where you want to go so have, you know, some sort of uh, idea of, of where you're heading. Because if you don't know where you, you want to go, you're never going to find your way there. Mm-hmm. And then look at your daily habits, even your hourly or minutely habits, and say, are these habits conducive to getting me to where I want to go? So changing little things can lead to big changes. And then the other thing I say to people is just, um, I, I just say, script your perfect life. And what that means is either sit down in front of a computer uh, or take out a sheet of paper and just say, right now, if I had my ideal life, if everything was exactly how I wanted it, what would it look like? And just write a paragraph about it. Just ramble a paragraph about what, you know, you might be, um, you know, a a humanitarian in India, (laughs) You know, or or not, you might be a, a famous you know movie star. Whatever it might be, 
write down what your perfect life would look like. You know, who would you live with? Where would you live? What would you be doing? Write these things down. And and until you write these things down, you don't know where you want to go. You don't have any idea of of what you want to be. And I think once you script your perfect life, then you somewhat have an idea and a road, and you can develop a roadmap to getting to where you want to go. And I think a lot of people originally think, oh, you know, I want to be a billionaire. That's kind of my perfect life. But then when they think it through, they're like, no, money doesn't mean that much to me, or I don't need that much money. That's not really what's going to make me the happiest. What's going to make me the happiest is, you know, I want to be a horticulturalist. I love plants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I want to start a, a gardening service. So I think um, scripting your perfect life and then looking at, you know, those habits that will get you to where you want to go is kind of the recipe for, for transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think that I would add to that, <clears throat> that that you have to work backwards from that and look in, and sort of create that path and figure out what it, like you said, what is the daily habit or what is it that I could do today? Even if it's just, let me make a phone call and see if there's a class on horticulture in my area, like just the simplest thing that you could do that's easily attainable in your day that will begin to generate momentum, you know, because the more you can generate that momentum, then it becomes a self-perpetuating trajectory that's more likely to lead to your desired outcome. And I would add to that creating community and accountability around whatever it is that you're seeking, right? You need people around you who are supporting you, who, but who are also giving you objective feedback saying you're off course here, or yeah, you said you wanted to do this and now you're, you know, doing this other thing. What's up? I, I couldn't agree more. And the other, you know, I'll keep adding to this list. I think we're hitting on some good topics is changing what you put in your mouth. <laughs> um, you know, to me, I, I, I know you and I will debate this forever, but, you know, plant-based diet, which I largely follow is fantastic. But I would still say any sort of refined foods, any packaged goods, uh, I, I, you know, once I cut those things out of my life, my energy level, my motivation was so much higher and you need motivation, you need energy, mm-hmm. uh, to see these things through and, you know, to, to start with the very habit of what you put in your mouth is probably the hardest thing to change ever. Uh, but if you can do that, you learn a lot about what's going on internally in your mind that allowed you to make that shift. So I, I just say, you know, really look at what you're putting in your mouth as, as the first habit to change. I can't overstate that. I mean, everything that's happened to me was because I changed my diet. You know, people look at my story and they're like, oh, well, you did all this stuff. Well, what if you were eating paleo? Do you think you could? It doesn't matter. Like, I changed my diet. It shifted my consciousness, my perspective. It, it created a, a, a new level of energy that allowed me to explore another side to how I was living. And that created, and, that, and then that, developed momentum. And then now I'm sitting in your house having a podcast with you, which is the most unexpected and bizarre, unpredictable thing I would have ever imagined. Like, this is not the life that I thought I was going to be living, but it was all because I changed my diet. Well, and, you know, I'll conclude with saying, yeah, my next book is kind of the secret sauce of how you do that. Because, Mm. you know, you you certainly had a, a moment, like a, you know, a come to Jesus moment where, you know, you, you transformed and not everyone has that moment. So how do you use kind of those lessons, especially for someone who's not quite as compulsive (laughs) as you to actually change your diet? So, you Mm -hmm. know, what sort of paradigm shifts can you make internally? Because it's easy for you and I to preach 
change your diet, change your diet. You know, I promise you, you'll feel better. But um, it's not easy to do in practice. No. And yeah. And I didn't do it. Uh, I didn't just wake up one day with everything being great and say, I'm going to change it. I did it because I was in pain because I was desperate, you know, and you can't impose that on somebody and not everybody reaches that kind of moment in their life where they're blessed with that level of willingness to like do anything it takes to change their circumstances. But I do think that if you, uh, the more that you can be centered in the now, like we were talking about earlier, uh, not living in future outcomes that haven't happened yet or not like rehashing stories of things that happened in the past, but truly present in the moment, then you become, you begin to become much more aware of the signals that are out there that can be like, uh, you know, little kind of stones on the trail to say, here, come this way or come that way. You become much more in touch with your instincts and your instincts become more reliable. And I think that that can take the place of some, you know, colossal fuck up in your life that makes you have to like, you know, change your life wholesale overnight because I don't wish that upon anyone. It's very effective if you want to change your life, but it's not the most fun either. (laughs) So I think that there's an easier, softer way, but it does have to do with like really getting grounded and centered in, in who you are. And the more you can be present and aware of your environment, then the more conscious you are about, um, what you're letting in, what you're not letting in and, 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 and what the path ahead, you know, is that you should take. Yeah. And I mean, I think that to, to your point that starts with, you know, turning off the screen or putting down the screen. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that the easiest way to distract yourself is, which a lot of, so many people do is they read their, you know, their texts or their, their emails while they're eating Mm -hmm. and you're not very present, (laughs) Uh, if you're doing, you know, anything besides just eating, um, be it, you know, watching TV, um, you know, reading the paper, whatever. So a habit to change is just when you eat, just eat, (laughs) sit in the same, you know, just these simple behavioral things. I mean, you have a pretty large social media presence. So how do you manage that in your life without getting caught up in it? I mean, do you have just have certain times of the day where you check in on it and then you turn it off the rest of the day or what is your habit around that? That's been a really hard balance to strike. And I think I've just um, come to the point, well, I've got someone helping me now. So mm-hmm. someone who's um, has made me more efficient in what I do. They don't necessarily answer. They don't send out. I, I still, you know, I, I am the master of all my content. So um, they've just taught me how to be more efficient. And the one thing I've learned is that, um, you know, social media is either going to uh, control you or you're going to control it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at first it was controlling me. I mean, I just felt... Uh, so compulsive, you know, to respond like, some, you know, some of these, some of these comment, I mean, some of these uh, postings will get that I, I put out, will get five, 600 comments. And there's just, it's impossible to answer all of those comments. Mm-hmm. So at a point you just have to say, you know, there's, there's just going to be more comments than, than you can answer. And that's just the reality of it. But you can't let it control you, <laughs> you know, you do the best you can and mm-hmm. be satisfied with that. And so I just put forth my best effort. And, you know, the one thing I really have, have stressed is that um, quality of content that I push out, that to me means more than anything. If I can't get back to everyone um, regarding their comments, then so be it. But in every bit of content that I push out, um, my commitment is that there's going to be something in, of value in, uh, to the recipient of that content. So either, you know, a tidbit of advice or guidance or something that's helped me or something that'll make them laugh, <laughs> mm-hmm. or something insightful, 
but I'm never going to just push out content, you know, either as an ad or whatever. Even, you know, working with my sponsors, I always um, kind of adjust uh, any sort of content they want me to push out, especially if it's a promotional sort of thing, to, you know, to tailor it to someone who might actually benefit from whatever it is they're hawking. Because I think that um, that's why I've got such a loyal following is because I'm, I'm true to these people. I care about them, and I'm not just going to overwhelm them with more noise. Uh, I want to help them, and I want to you know, provide uh, anything that's helped me or any service that might help them. I want to get it to the right people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, those are good guideposts. I mean, I'm considering taking uh, like Twitter and email off my cell phone. Which uh, I interviewed a guy uh, for the podcast the other day. This guy Josh Ship, who's an amazing guy with a huge social media presence. He's a he's sort of an expert on teens, <clears throat> works with parents and teens, and and we were chatting about how social media began to be overwhelming for him, and he took it off his phone, and now he he has like very specific hours when he will engage and others where it's completely off limits. And he said it's transformed his life and he's more productive and more effective in his communication. So he challenged me to do that, which is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I'm thinking about doing Easier it. Easier said but, than uh, done, yeah, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, we'll see how it goes, but I like what you had to say about that. All well, right. Don't well, give up on this podcast because I love getting, oh, I well, love no, this. Is, yeah. This doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I'm keeping. If I'm doing anything, I'm doing this. This is this has been. Well, you're. You know, if it's any consolation, you're helping a lot of people. I hear it all the time. So you oh, know, thanks, whenever man. you're feeling tired and beat up by it, just know that you're you're benefiting a lot of people. I appreciate that. But at the end of the day, also, it gives me a great excuse to call someone like you up and get a two hour have a two hour conversation <laughs> with them. You know, and and when do you get that in life? You know, it's this lost thing we were talking about being introverted and, and, and being personally connected and how important that is to, to being happy. And it, it's such a blessing for me to be able to, it's almost like I got the greatest scam going ever. <laughs> you put a microphone in someone and then I get to like ask them all these questions and it's helped me a lot too. And, and the, but the fact that it's resonating out there is incredibly gratifying and I'm only committed to be being better and doing, doing more of it and, and getting better at it. But I appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much. Uh, you have inspired me tremendously. You inspire millions of people out there and I wish you only the best and that you continue to have wind in your sails. Thanks, Rich. Same to you, brother. Um, if people want to learn more about you and connect with you, deancarnazes.com. Dean yeah, is on Twitter. Ultramarathon.com. You're pretty yeah. easy to find online. Yeah. <laughs> if you can spell my name, yeah. Right. And uh, do you have any upcoming, well, you're going to New York Marathon, uh, do you have any other like upcoming talks or things where if people want to be able to see you in person, I'm sure there's a schedule on your website, right? Yeah, if they go to my website and look on my schedule, I'm pretty pretty good about updating that. So yeah, mm-hmm. no, um I pretty full schedule. And people are, you know, people say, Are you gonna be in Texas? And I'm like, Well, you know, not this week. <laughs> like watch my schedule because it's it's pretty dynamic. Yeah. And you're doing this thing with uh with quarterly.co now, right? With these gift boxes. These gift boxes. Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, so that, you know, that quarterly is, is an interesting service. So quarterly is, um, they have a number of curators and these are kind of um, personalities, if you will. They have, you know, a couple uh, athletes, they have... I think Tim Ferriss is doing it. Tim Ferriss is mm-hmm. doing it. Um, they have design, fashion designers, um, you know, Ariana Huffington's doing it. And it's basically, they come to the curator and they say, you know, pick um, items that 
uh, are unique to you that you like and put them in a, in a, in a gift box and we'll send these out quarterly. So um, they came to me and said, you, you know, would you like to do a quarterly box? And I said, yeah. And I was kind of conflicted because you, it's, a, it's a subscription service that people mm-hmm. have to sign up for. And, and they don't know what they're going to get. No, they have no yeah. idea. And, you know, I'm thinking, geez, people are going to be so disappointed when they get my stuff. And, you know, I've really emphasized two things, and that's uh, variety and value. So I think if you look at my gift boxes, because I got a couple gift boxes from other curators, I'm like, you know, I'm not going to mention so names. But I'm like, geez, I don't know if I'd pay that kind of money, for, you know, for a box like this. So um, I definitely give a variety of, of products and devices and, and services, as well as, you know, if you look at the the total value, the retail value of what goes into my box, um, it's two or, you know, two or three X times the amount that someone's spending against this. And, and, you know, there's a personalized note in there. So it kind of explains, you know, why I like these things. And mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have gotten back to me and said, um, this is fantastic. And you, know, you have tried these new things. This is great. I love this. I, you know, and then there's been other people that say, oh, you're, you know, you're selling your soul. And, so it's, it's kind of a... Well, you know, you you're know, always going to get that. But yeah. I think it's a cool idea, you know, for people that are interested in what you're doing and they can get to, you know, experience some of the products that you like. You know, it's cool. I think it's Well, cool. my original thought was, you know, we all have runners in the family. We all have friends that are runners, you know, or we always need a gift for someone. And you're like, oh, God, the guy's a runner. What the heck do I get him? And I thought this would be a cool gift idea, like, because, you know, I'd, I'd get a gift. To to, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or you can just buy a one-time, you know, one-time shipping as well. Uh, but in, it it's, hasn't been the case. I mean, most people are subscribing just because they like getting it themselves. Mm-hmm. Cool. So if people want to check that out, just go to quarterly.co. Quarterly.co, yep. Forward yeah. slash Dean or something like that? Or is uh, it, well, there's a your... list of all the curators. Oh, yeah, and they can, there. you can choose, yeah. All right, cool. And, I mean, it goes for not just me, but, I mean, if you know someone who's a, as a foodie or a techie, whatever, there's, yeah. All right, man. I think we did it. Yeah. How do you feel? Uh, I feel like going for a run. <laughs> Another yeah, run. Let's, run. Let's, uh, let's go run to Paragon. <laughs> Have a good time in New York, man. And uh, this was a pleasure. Uh, let's do it again when your book comes out. Absolutely, Rich. Right, good luck cool. to you. Okay. Thanks, Dean. Peace. Plants. All right, everybody, that's our show. That's it. We're done. We're out of here. How'd you like that? What'd you think? I think he's pretty awesome. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Before I sign off with this week's assignment, a couple quick announcements. Again, go to richroll.com. Check out the stuff that we have on sale through December 20th, plus all our other good stuff, e-cookbook, meditation program, merch, t-shirts, nutritional products. Again, uh, $10 off all t-shirts, $10 off my repair post-workout recovery plant-based protein supplement and buy one, get one free on our B12 supplement all through December 20th. Uh, If you want to take your plant-based nutrition game to the next level or you're interested in how to set goals and achieve them, you're feeling stuck in your life, well, I've got a couple online courses at mindbodygreen.com. The first one's called The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. The second one's called The Art of Living with Purpose. Uh, You can find both of them at mindbodygreen.com. Just click on video courses in the upper right corner. Uh, Both are multiple hours of streaming video content, downloadable tools, an interactive community, everything you need to know to get more plants in your active life or set yourself on a new and healthier nutrition trajectory. Probe deep inside to learn more about what makes you tick. Set the right goals for yourself. 
take those goals across the finish line and ultimately raise the bar on your personal and athletic life experience. How's that, you guys? Uh, What else? If you're in L.A., this is my invitation to you to stop by our new restaurant, Joy Cafe, feeling awesome, right in the heart of Westlake Village off Agora Road. Uh, Go to joycafe.com, J-O-I, cafe.com to learn more. And you can find me there at lunch a couple times a week. So come on by, say hi, get some delicious food, engage Nick and Joy, the proprietors, in a lively conversation. Leave feeling great. Uh, if you're interested in listening to the back catalog of the podcast, if you notice on iTunes, they only list the most recent 50. We're now at 115, so more than half the catalog is not on iTunes. Do not fret. Uh Get the Rich Roll app. Uh, go to the App Store or the iTunes App Store. Just type in Rich Roll. You'll see the Rich Roll app for all iOS mobile devices. It's completely free, uh, and it's your free and easy way to access the entire catalog, the whole RRP canon, the RRP Irv, and uh, give us a review on iTunes as well. Please, that helps us out a lot. Just takes a second. Uh, continue to support the show by telling a friend, using the Amazon banner ad, by donating buttons on the site. Keep Instagramming. Don't forget to tag me at Rich Roll. Assignment. Today's theme was really about comfort versus di- discomfort, right? Like the importance of getting out of your comfort zone, the importance of touching struggle, the importance of embracing failure, all of these things. So I want you guys to think a little bit about where you're comfortable in your life, where you're just sort of feeling like it's okay to just coast, right? You know in your heart of hearts, if you really think, deeply, if you really look in the mirror, honestly, you know, there's that thing that you're doing that maybe isn't serving you, but it's just comfortable and you don't really want to give it up. That's the thing I want you to focus on. Try to identify that one thing. What is it that's holding you back? You know, it's holding you back. You just don't want to deal with it. You just want, because you don't want to give it up, right? It doesn't matter whether it's you know, some eating thing, like you like Oreos or it's some lifestyle habit that doesn't serve you. Like you like to stay up too late watching television. It doesn't matter what it is. You all know what it is. If you're being honest with yourself, I want you to think about that thing and then start making a plan to eradicate it, to get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. It might take a little bit of struggle to push up against that, uh, that habit that you're so comfortable perpetuating to get over it. But if you can give yourself that boost and struggle through it and get to the other side, that's when you touch freedom. So think about that this week, you guys. And I'll see you back here next week. Peace. Plants. Plants.